Digital Gonzo, episode 105, dated Thursday, the 18th of October, 2012, Firefly, part one. startup i just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who has donated to gonzo planet in the past month i'm actually kind of humbled by your generosity gary blower eric hall carl liggin michael garcia chloe gender truckery sean cullen matt wetter david hickman matthew labelle craig cole tim van der hedgen margaret owen james library Rob Finney, Jerome McIntosh, Jamie Codling, Joe Crew, Matthew Kissler, Dave Bond, Dave Hartrick, Ed Schmuntz, Giles Thomas, Paul Gibson, Michael Hardy, Josh Garrity, James Beauchamp, Mike Lodal, Danielle De Heerge, Connor Milford, Aaron Moore and James Carter. All of these contributions will help me keep the website alive and see me podcasting with renewed vigour for another year. And thank you to everyone who has left me iTunes reviews as well. Those help Digital Gonzo reach all new ears. And welcome to any new listeners who are here because of Firefly. I hope you all enjoy the show. If you've not yet donated but would like to throw a pound into the pot, the PayPal button is on the Gonzo Planet website. Welcome back to the good ship Digital Gonzo with me, your captain, Alex Shaw. Tonight, after months of teasing, we are finally going to be talking about one of the most beloved sci-fi shows of all time. For lifelong brown coats, welcome aboard, you're in good company. For the uninitiated, allow us to convince you within two hours why you should track down and watch this series on DVD, or better yet, Blu-ray. For this episode, we are covering the first half of Firefly, comprising the following seven episodes... The Pilot, The Train Job, Bushwhacked, Shindig, Safe, Our Mrs. Reynolds, and Janestown. Next week, we will cover the concluding seven episodes, and the week after that, we're talking about the movie that wrapped up this particular story all too early for those that loved it, Serenity. Due to the short run of the series and the essential quality of the work, this will serve as our sizzle show. But there will be spoilers of these first seven episodes throughout. So if you've not seen the show, it will be your choice as to when to stop listening and to jump onto Amazon, Love Film or Netflix before you return for the conclusion. Now we got us a crew of six big damn heroes tonight. From the all-new Dorkcast and regular guest on Digital Gonzo, my elegant, erstwhile and real erudite companion, Sharon Shaw. Good evening. Again, from Dorkcast, presenter of Game of Dork 4.0, former co-chair of Some Other Castle, veteran podcasting warrior woman, Miss Leah Haydu. Apparently, I'm a big damn hero. From Dorkcast and Dork Tunes, another repeat offender on Digital Gonzo, hotshot, leaf on the wind, Mr. Matt Ramsey. Howdy. From Ken and Rince and little documentary series y'all might remember called The Animation Archives, podcasting doctor, Josh Garrity. Hello there. 
And from Game Burst, Ninja Fat Pigeons, and formerly Big Red Potion, the wise, sage-like old man with a shadowy past, our resident shepherd, Gary Blower. <laughs> well, mate's called me Badger. <laughs> you can't sneak a badger in here. There's restrictions. Right, this week we're going to focus on the characters, with next week being the troubled production, premature cancellation, and the impact of the series on us, the viewers. And we're going to frame these discussions around the episodes themselves, which we will cover one by one. And one more thing before we start. These are going to be clean shows in terms of language, unless, of course, you speak Mandarin Chinese, in which case they may turn into a torrent of filth, because I want all coarse slang to be authentic to the verse. For example... The world of Firefly is named The Verse and has an extensive backstory mostly just hinted at during the main series, but detailed a little more during the movie. It would appear that Earth at some point in the future became uninhabitable and a mass exodus of ships departed outwards, colonizing distant planets into a makeshift new frontier in space. There are or were eight core worlds clustered around Bai Hu, the White Sun. This is where the Planetary Alliance was formed. This unified conglomeration of governments and corporate interest prides itself on the ethos that it can make people better. And as far as the folks on Serenity are concerned, they like themselves fine the way they are. It's never exactly explained why, but interstellar civilization seems to have devolved to a cultural match of the American Wild West, though Chinese culture and language has also worked its way in strongly as well. There is a border of two stars, Georgia and Red Sun, both of which orbit the core system. They are home to a series of planet colonies that declared independence from the Alliance. Further out, you have the rim, which is the edge of charted space, including the stars Kalidasa and Blue Sun and their various planets. The War for Independence parallels the American Civil War, and in accordance with the Battle of Gettysburg, in which the Confederate Army were defeated, the final blow was struck to the independence in 2511 at the Battle of Serenity Valley on the planet Hera. Sergeant Malcolm Reynolds and Zoe Elaine were on the losing side, and the defeat weighed heavily, specifically on Reynolds, who had been left in charge of 2,000 troops, of which only 150 survived. This degraded his faith in God and religion to a great extent, but not his faith in people, though he does try to hide that. The principal driving force of this series is the crew of Serenity, the ramshackle 03 K-64 Firefly-class ship that Reynolds named for the place of his defeat, and their attempts to make a living on the fringe of society while evading the Alliance. Captain Reynolds, as a partial moral relativist, finds them work that often contravenes the law, but avoids those that involve exploitation of the defenceless and the downtrodden. He will kill men in a heartbeat, but they have to be armed and facing him, or if not, then at least threatening him and his with a similar corpsifying fate. On the ship you will find a pilot, an engineer, a soldier, a mercenary, a doctor, a pastor, a courtesan, and the product of a government experiment to turn a young girl into a psychic weapon. Given time you may just grow to love this bunch of misfits and the makeshift family unit they form. So we'll start off talking about the pilot, which I'm not going to call Serenity because it's too darn confusing since the film is also called Serenity, the ship is also called Serenity, so we'll just go ahead and call it the pilot, the double-length first episode. But let's look at the pilot, just as you'd see it on the DVD or Blu-ray. And for this, the key character to discuss is Malcolm Reynolds, played by Nathan Fillion. And you can also discuss Badger, and then if you feel like throwing them in there, the sets, the costumes, the music, and Serenity itself, because all of these things hit you in the pilot. I will start off by saying, and 
I, I don't I don't know whether this is a popular opinion or not, but my <laughs> one of my um, biggest complaints with the series as a whole is that it has got to have the dumbest theme song that I have ever heard. What? What? <laughs> don't know about the future. That's anybody's guess. Ain't no good reason for getting all depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Are you crazy? A little, but that's not the point. Okay, that's true. Um, uh, yeah, no, no, no. Hear her out. What grounds do you have for this being a dumb theme song? I think it's mostly the the. I, you know what? I don't think I'd mind it as much if it were somebody different singing it because the music in the series is wonderful and it fits. Mm. And that I have no complaints with. It's specifically the theme song because, and I, I may be being horribly insulting because maybe that's this guy's actual voice, but it sounds like he's affecting this horrible twangy faux southern accent to sing this cheesy western song, and it just it doesn't work for me at all. The guy's name is Sonny Rhodes. Shall we look up how you many? Uh, yeah, up, that's not it? fake. <laughs> Shall we uh, check out to see how many millions of albums he's sold in the country? Go ahead. Okay, um, okay right. Uh, That's a stripper name. <laughs> <laughs> the song was actually written by Joss Whedon. By Joss Whedon. It was, yeah. He performed I it on know. the uh, DVD. I'm sorry. Aside from the uh, theme song, like it's which... It's trying too hard and it's fake. I just... Mm, you <laughs> clearly never watched country music television because they all sound like they're trying too hard in their face. Maybe that's just my problem. <laughs> you have to watch country music television all day long. Maybe yeah. it's just that I don't like country music. I don't. But but like I said, I like I like the music for the rest of the series and it's all sort of in the same vein. It just... Uh, uh, Wait a minute. Are you saying you're a little bit rock and roll? <sighs> <laughs> I suppose I am. It would I mean, so. to, to, to uh, compare it with something equivalent, if you think of Star mm. Trek Enterprise, which, whose theme was truly dreadful, this this is n- nowhere near in the same league. I actually compare it most to uh, the one in the beginning of Deadwood. Yeah. Is similar in tone, but it's a lot more... Well, it's got no lyrics to it specifically. I think, actually, if Firefly hadn't had any lyrics to it, the, uh, then it would still be a wonderful piece of, uh, of music. Sure, you, know, you know what? I we... think I might actually have liked it better if it didn't have lyrics. I, I don't think I would have had a problem with it. So after the, uh, the intro sequence, actually, went well, on before that, first off, there's the Battle of Serenity Valley. Now, have you guys seen the deleted scene of the original version of that scene? Not this well, time say... around, but uh, I... I, I'm sure I've, I have the DVD set this time around. I just watched them on Netflix, but it is very, very cheap and short and depressing. Look alive, people! We got med ships en route. Need to prepare for extraction. We lost four more from the 76. Are those really med ships? Are we really getting out? We are. 
Thank God. God? Whose color is he flying? That's the point that uh, Malcolm uh, Reynolds gives up on God. And it's just depressing. You don't really see the struggle. You just see that they've been torn to shreds. It's a recreation of war. And what the first starts off with really shooting as high as they possibly can. They're, they're trying to show you a war, something that's absolutely massive and that they can't possibly convey on the budget they've got. But with just a few guys and some explosions, they, they, they kind of give you an idea of what the Battle of Serenity Valley was like. What I think is so important about this scene is seeing Malcolm slowly lose his faith uh, bit by bit. Uh, just watching all his friends die in front of him... Um, like there's a bit where he's uh, just grabbing like a, a code off of somebody's dead corpse because they're that that desperate and um, uh, you know upgrading the status as one of his mates and the moment where he sees the alliance ships come down and just rain down fire and he's not even blinking uh, he's just just horrified by what he's witnessing is a really powerful moment. And he's he's really upbeat up to that point. He's you know he's joking with the men, trying to keep morale up. He's being a really good leader, and you can understand why Zoe's behind him at that point. And I'm not going to really talk about production, but Fox wanted Malcolm to be more jolly because he seemed too dour in this uh, this pilot episode. Did they at any point say make him fat and dress him in red? I believe they said they wanted him to be Santa. Did they ask Jack Bauer to be more jolly? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the series they gave like nine seasons to so yeah you get the Battle of Serenity and then they loot the ship and then oh straight away you see that when they're in space there's no sounds it's one of the I, I, I can't think of any other time I've actually seen this in a sci-fi film other than maybe like Moon or 2001 it's even Battlestar Galactica they mute it but it's still not absolutely silent yeah Actually, speaking of Battlestar Galactica, there's a certain little um, like camera zoom in trick that makes it seem like it's a really it's a neat idea because it's like they've actually got cameramen there in space and the cameraman's trying to pull focus very quickly on a moving starship, which gives you a feeling of, of it being like airfare footage. You're seeing the rough cuts almost, which is a really great way of feel, it feeling immediate. And um, Battlestar Galactica took this technique and did it ev- every time you saw a new ship. Uh, in, in BSG and there are a lot of ships in that they sort of refocused the camera before Firefly came out when it was still in the editing uh, process and they've been planning this for, for ages Joss Whedon Tim Minio went to see Attack of the Clones and they have that technique in Attack of the Clones and they're like God because there's none of that in any of the other Star Wars prequels there's none of that feeling of, of immediacy at all it's so out of step with the rest of it but it's a, a really neat little flourish which just happened to be thought of by Lucasfilm at the same time but uh, now all the best sci-fi has it as well. I've got a feeling Jay- Babylon, Babylon 5, the initial... Oh, did it? Yeah, initially. I, I, I think they changed it, but I, I do seem to remember initially it didn't. But then they tended to have like a really booming soundtrack over everything, so you, you wouldn't have actually heard the silence. Yeah, no, J.J. Abrams, of course, does it in uh, Star Trek all the time with his shaky cam and his lens flares, which so many people hate, but I adore. But, uh, yeah, really neat idea there. And, uh, and then it, it then cuts away to Serenity flying off just to the twangy music, and then you get the intro. Take my love, take my land, take me where I cannot stand. I don't care, I'm still free, you 
you about the costumes They're this weird mix of you know the western like deadwood style costumes and chinese authentic chinese clothing as well which makes sense because it's this amalgamation of cultures it, it's a really interesting because i've never seen this kind of uh, design in uh, sci-fi before usually they go for um, the you know the traditional Star Trek kind of design where everyone's wearing very slick uniforms and everything's very skin tight and mm. stuff like that. It's nice that they're like the clothes is, are kind of ragged and dirty lived and lived in. Yeah, they look more like clothes and less like costumes. That's possibly because they're very specifically not wearing uniforms. That's something that if you look at a lot of sci-fi Star Trek, it's based around military uniforms. Battlestar Galactica, most of the characters are wearing uh, uniforms or some derivative of throughout most of it. Um, These are clothes that these people have put together individually. They look lived in. There are little touches here and there that give them those... the, The appearance that everybody has put their outfit together in a way that works for them. I mean, I know we're talking about Kaylee later on, but one thing that struck me was that she's got a little applique teddy bear on her um, overalls. Yeah, Lyra noticed that. Which is, when would you ever see that? But it's so Kaylee. And also, now that I mention it, that they are clothes, a lot of this wardrobe stuff is not fabricated. They didn't make Jane's pants. They went out and bought some cargo pants. Well, actually, um, going along with what Sharon was saying, the, the difference between Firefly and something like Star Trek or like Battlestar Galactica those are military situations. Those people are part of a, a sanctioned crew. D- does that mm. make more sense? Like, it's more of an official thing. They would yeah. be in uniforms. The crew of the Firefly, they're, they're a crew, but they're not sanctioned. You know, they, it's they, like the A-team in space. There's no uniform for them to have, you know, mm. except for the little bits and pieces of maybe the... the um, the brown coat uniforms um, that they might have floating around as, you know, Mal and Zoe both do. Um, yeah. it's, it just would not make sense for them to have that kind of uniform because it's, it wouldn't exist in that situation. Okay, two, two quick things. One, um, there was actually, a, I mean, you say that there's been no sci-fi that had kind of a Western look. Unfortunately, in the 80s, it was, there, was, there, was, there was a couple, but one particularly bad example you can go and seek out if you're feeling really depressed is Battle Beyond the Stars. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that. I've heard of it. Okay, it's a dreadful Star Wars cash-in, but it actually has George Peppard in it as a oh, right. space-trucking cowboy. And uh, is he trying to follow in Dirk Benedict's footsteps? <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, it's got Robert Vaughan in it and, and yeah, a few other people. The aesthetic of that is a kind of mixture between the sort of Star Wars Tatooine desert combined with the Wild West. So you've got. Was this a TV show? I think it was originally planned to be a TV show, but they just ended up releasing right. it as a movie. 
Yeah, and looking at it, all of the promotional stuff, it is just a movie, I yeah. think. But that was the yeah. that was the thing I'm trying to dial in. Battle Beyond the Stars. A lone youth escapes on a last ditch mission that begins at the edge of the universe. The story of a boy who finds more than he expected. <laughs> and all he can handle. Does your species have kissing? Oh, yes. We have that. <laughs> Try one. That's a hot dog. It comes from Earth. Um, the other thing is, of course, that if you look at sort of dystopian science fiction, I'm thinking of mm. things like Mad Max and, and, and its ilk. Most of those kind of... Riff, kind of a western riff on that western idea. thing, and the, and the whole western look. I mean, we sh- we shouldn't just uh, assume it's it's the U.S. either, because most of the kind of frontiers countries like um, South Africa, Australia, South America, and and obviously the U.S. all had this kind of frontiersman culture, that kind of ragtag look with basic weapons, and you know that that were around at the time. You know, there's plenty of you know if you look at this, there's quite a few Australian films that. I mean, the set in that period, or, or you know, Mad Max indeed, which is you know um, really a sort of riffing on that on those themes, you know. So um, I, I think that's where the look comes from. It's not. It's less. It's less sci-fi. It's more this kind of dystopian future um, of this sort of you know uh, complete juxtaposition with the with the alliance and its cleanliness. I think and, you're right there. The contradiction between the organised environment of something like the Federation and the frontier type planets that are a lot more cobbled together out of what they can yeah, find. They, they deliberately make, like whenever they're showing the Alliance, they deliberately show cities and metropolises, you know, uh, and, and these sort of giant capital ships. Um, but whenever they show the other side of that, everything's very, very rural. Um, you know, you, you, I know obviously on Persephone you see a bit of this kind of you know, space dock back, you know, backwards culture. But majority of the places they visit are effectively, you know, they're farming colonies or mining colonies, and they, they, there isn't anything else there. So there, there's always this kind of mixture of the two. And, and the stuff that they're wearing is the stuff of the working man, you know. Yeah. Whereas obviously the stuff you see the alliance wear, that's where the uniforms come in because it's all about uniformity and control and and structure. The other thing I noticed about the, the costume design. Um, on the backwater planets, it's very much the, sort of the cargo pants, dusters, boots, uh, the sort of the cowboy look. Uh, when yeah. you get to the cities, uh, the the um, oriental look starts to come in, and it's, it's, it's yeah. almost like the um, there's, there's a class system at work. The the outfits of the the poorer people the, uh, are very much the the western look, but the people with money tend to have a lot more of the, the Chinese influence to what they're wearing there is a nice mixture when they're in uh, shindig of uh, you get this sort of like you know civil war colonels all you know with extremely decorated military style you know very smart uniforms and the ladies in very pretty chinese looking dresses i got the idea that, that the planet that's on is kind of halfway between the two yeah mm. that party of the rat was the cream of the crop of that relatively backwater planet so yeah. you've that's why you've got the mix of the two there compared to the the, the real core planets that place is a is a, a dive, but the people that that party were the very cream of that lower order. I was going to say, yeah, I mean those guys in in I don't know, talk about Shindig, I mean, but those guys are kind of like the nouveau riche. They're like the uh, 
you know the the equivalent of sort of Victorian England's you know mill owners and uh, you know the yes. upwardly mobile. Whereas what you're seeing on the core planets are the aristocracy. You know, that's, that's the, the kind of the class divide. They will never become aristocracy, but they're striving to appear that way. It's almost like uh, footballers in Cheshire. Yes, plenty of money, but no class. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Another TV show this kind of reminds me of, and it's one I've never really watched, and from the sounds of it, it's depressing as hell, uh, but it's about uh, seven or, well, yeah, pre- precisely seven vagabonds on a spaceship. British, anyone? Like seven. Like seven. Like seven. Mm. Being pursued by the Federation. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I've I've seen it, but I'm probably not the best person to ask about that. I, I seem to remember Neil talking about yeah, he that. So it, he'll yeah. be nodding on that. Yeah. Not to throw the super obvious comparison out there, but Star Wars. Yeah, now that's obviously the, the the big one. There is such uh, a huge, hefty chunk in this of Joss Whedon going, right, now what would it be like if it was the Civil War in space? And taking the Millennium Falcon and that side of Star Wars, all of the best sort of the smuggler aspects of it, and the lived-in aspects, specifically of like the first Star Wars and Empire. On the planet in Safe, when uh, River goes wandering off, Simon sort of runs out of this sort of general store. You know, it looks like a Wild West town, but there are all these old CRT monitors piled up as junk outside it's like they've sort of they've dressed the sets up with various bits of tech and made everything look old and used and Serenity herself is the prime example of that everything about Serenity makes it seem like she's been battered and she's far far older than anyone actually on it and has been lived in for the entirety of the many many years she's been in service actually when you said British, and I know this is totally not the comparison that you wanted to make, but the first thing that popped into my head was Red Dwarf. <laughs> just just because, and I know that they're, they're completely different in terms of, of tone and, and all the rest of it, but the idea of them being in this very lived-in environment and that the, the important thing about that show is the interaction between the characters. It's not really about the, the deep of space that they go in and explore in because that's all just you know cardboard BBC sets it's about the way they interact with each other we could probably talk about the character of Badger here as well. E. <laughs> You're a fan of Badger then? Y- yes, in a way. <laughs> he just he just makes me laugh because um, I, I, I believe the actor is actually from the East End, and it's it's oh, just yeah. I just find it funny that they. Well, it's quite astute because you know uh, I mean I, I grew up in South East London, and where I grew up, every street corner had a car dealer on it. And it's because when the Germans bombed London, they demolished all these kind of, you know, every other house was demolished and was just flattened. So what the locals did is they turned every single one of those little plots into a, into little mini car showrooms, you know, with like, they'd have three cars in the front and they, they'd flog your sister if they could, you know, they, it's just, that's just the, that, the East End way, really. And it just makes me laugh that they dialed into that for this series. I mean, it's spot on and it's very, very astute for an American writer. We're not all dumb. <laughs> no, but you know, 
<laughs> even in the UK, that's not something that's widely understood. You know, okay, this, we have like TV shows, Only Fools and Horses, that kind of play on that. But it, you know, it really is true. You know, East East London is basically full of scrap metal dealers and car dealers, and and this is what this guy is. I think, uh, Leah, have you ever seen this the documentary Steptoe and Son? <laughs> <laughs> it's about a dirty old man and his son. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He makes a hell of an impression. Uh, he's a very small supporting character, and he's barely in the series, but he's really entertaining. He's a massive P.N., but he's an entertaining P.N., and you just enjoy watching uh, Mal get the better of him. He's um, a brilliant way to outline Mal, actually, because Mal's been set up as the kind of character who would not talk about himself. But Badger does it all for him because he's, you know, tongue-hinged in the middle, yakking on about all the things he doesn't like about Mal. Well, that perfectly outlines what this character is. Does that mean he's Badger Exposition? Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, uh... <laughs> is it just worth briefly talking about the, the, how they overcome one of the problems with most sci-fi uh, TV shows in particular in that they dodge the science fiction completely? Yes, go for it. So, you know, they cleverly avoid the fact that the Firefly-class ship doesn't need to go faster than the speed of light by the fact that this solar system that the, the entire series is set in is effectively just one solar system with lots and lots of planets. Yeah. So faster than light travel is is not needed. And in fact, yeah. it's not beyond the wit of man to, you know, be able to navigate between these planets like... Uh, you know, tall ships did between the islands of the Caribbean. You know, and that's yeah. that's the kind of model that they've they've taken, which again is good because you know, obviously the Caribbean was another frontier. And they don't, they really, they, if you if you sort of examine the film and the, the series as a whole, there's very little science fiction in it. You know, there's uh, most of it is is science fact. You know, and, yeah. and even the ship itself, um, like most of the best sort of science fiction series that involve starships uh it's it's modeled on you know submariners and submarines and, and using the you know the the kind of bonhomie spirit that exists on those sorts of boats and, and again dialing into classics such as enemy below and dust dust boat and things like that which you know you can see influences of that throughout the entire series in fact yeah. it plays into the character emphasis as well because they've got lots of time in between these planets to interact and get to know each other and, and a lot of what you see in some of these episodes is, you know, Mal coming to tell Anara that they're going to be at such and such a place within a few days you know, it's not like you just hit a few buttons on the console and bam, we're there in an hour Tying into that, something that is so basic and so obvious but you don't really notice it a whole lot in most other science fiction uh, is the fact that the ship needs fuel and they need supplies, and they, you know, you don't think about the Starship Enterprise needing, you know, fuel, but they do, and that's a humongous part of why they keep doing what they're doing, is because if they don't have fuel for the ship, if they don't have money to buy fuel, the ship doesn't go anywhere, and you don't really think about that a whole lot, but they, they do bring some of those kind of practical considerations up more frequently, and make them a bigger part of the story than a lot of other science fiction does. I was going to say, I also love the way that they in terms of the design of the Firefly itself, they based the entire ship around the cargo hold 
and they even when it you know most of the kind of interior action takes place there as well obviously because it's a big studio <laughs> it's nice and easy to do but you know if you had if that you know if that ship really existed everything was centered around that cargo hold it actually looks like it's a practical thing it looks like it's a big truck that you fly from yeah. planet to planet you know which is exactly what it is um, you know, I think there's, there's lots of clever little things they throw in there, and you know, talking about the realism side of things, I think this is the only series I can think of, or even film, when they actually show toilets. You can actually see, in all of their quarters, you can see they've got toilets, and I think there's a couple of scenes with them with toilets as well. You know, which is obviously the, the usual joke with these sorts of series that you know you never see them spending a penny. <laughs> I think we are unfortunately graced with Mal spending a penny in one of we the are, uh, yeah. next seven episodes. Brilliant, but yeah, no, yeah, nice, nice nod to that. Thank you. But uh, no, they they went out of their way to make sure that the entirety of Serenity was mapped out and that every room served a purpose and that every purpose was met. So you could live on there, and there was uh, there's never a case where uh, okay, right, so they eat in here. Where do they wash up? Oh, the dishes just get put elsewhere. There was like the, it, it was effectively functional. It's, it's like a big HGV, basically. I've often thought to myself, if I had the money, rather than building a house, I would simply build Serenity and live in that. <laughs> I think Joss has said, actually, that part of the point of the series was that it was about people getting by, because that's what most people do. You know, yeah. m- most people do think about a lot about where... You know, where's their money for their food coming from? How are they paying their rent? That kind of thing. And he wanted to write something about people who do that, not what was the phrase used? Policy makers, the people, you mm. know, the people who pull all the strings. It's the people who are getting pulled. Well, it, it makes the show so much more interesting that they have to deal with stuff that you know the Starship Enterprise and and other sci-fi shows don't have to deal with. Like they don't have guns on their ship, so if you know a big star cruiser comes past and threatens to blow them up, they have to get the hell out of there because there's yeah. no way they're going to defend themselves. Um, they don't have loads of resources, so when they're coming up with plans, they have to really think about it and come up with these intricate schemes to get past certain security systems and stuff like that the limitations force the writers to be more creative you know what Sharon now that you've mentioned it series 6 of Red Dwarf they were confined to Starbuck I think that actually persisted for series 7 as well and you do get a very similar feeling of them being stuck on that ship and they've got to go from planet to planet being able to find whatever fuel they can there Otherwise, they're just going to be dead in the water. So, actually, that's not the worst comparison in the world. Thank you. And, uh, Leah, if you haven't seen Red Dwarf, start with season four. <laughs> that's what I hear. And then stop at season six after. <laughs> at the end of season six, just stop.
mean, we've really got to talk about Malcolm Reynolds at this point. Because when, you fir- when I first saw him, I was like, ah, he's just trying to do Han Solo. Ah. Punches for my 25-year-old self at this point um, for not recognising the immense charm of Mr. Nathan Fillion. There definitely is Han Solo in there. I don't think you were wrong for thinking that. He's clearly mm. influenced by that character. But there is a lot of... He's damaged goods, basically. There's a lot of trauma there from the war. And he has an inconsistency, not in a bad way. There's, he's very inconsistent about the way he approaches certain things. He doesn't like getting too close to people, but he's incredibly attached to his crew. Um, and he's very protective of his crew. He's just, he's really fascinating. Somebody else talk about him. Something that kind of struck me is because, I, I mean, the series and Nathan Fillion are both quite a bit older now. Um, but when people say things like he should play Nathan Drake, this is what they're seeing. Because this, yeah. I mean, if, if, if that option had existed at this time, spot on. That's, that's really where that's coming from. Well, it's almost cart before the horse because the the folks at Uncharted are clearly, uh, folks at Naughty Dog are clearly major fans of Firefly because they've made Nathan Drake talk like Malcolm Reynolds. They've kept the dialogue in Uncharted like Firefly. Greg Edmondson does the music for both of them. Actually, I, I, I tweeted earlier today, why isn't Joss Whedon currently directing the Uncharted movie? As Neil said, it's because he's godfathering the Marvel Universe right now. Which is sad... It, it's, it's Uncharted's loss because I believe they get the directors of National Treasure, but it's Marvel's game? <laughs> Everyone loved National Treasure, didn't they? No? Right, well then why are they allowing them to make the Uncharted movie? What? You mean there was a problem with a movie starring Oscar winner Nicolas Cage? <laughs> he comes in stoic and crazy form. So, yeah, Malcolm Reynolds... It, <laughs> I mean, he's effectively the father of this family unit that he's formed around himself. And we, when, during this pilot episode, we get a grandfather suddenly added to the mix. We get a sort of a younger brother slash cousin that clashes with Malcolm. The clashes between him and Simon usually come because they're too similar. And I read this today. The, the problem is Simon cares very, very deeply about River and Mal cares very deeply about all of them. But to endanger all of them because Simon's just obsessing about River, the two ideals are not necessarily clashing, but they are at odds with each other in the long run. As is perfectly demonstrated when he seems to be willing to let Kaylee die. Yeah, and uses that as a bargaining chip. But of course he's only just met them at that point. And it's safe, that uh, we'll talk about very shortly, that uh, he becomes actually part of the crew. It's when he says, you're part of my crew. Why are we still talking about this? There's a lot in the way that all the characters are portrayed, I think, that most of them do not show who they really are up front, with the possible exception of Kaylee. Um, most of them have sort of a, a public veneer and then what they really think and how they really feel is, is going on behind that. And it's, I, I don't think it takes very long to understand that Mal, a lot of the way he behaves towards people is a response to the trauma he went through at Serenity Valley. Um, who he really is, is somebody who wants to be the fun sergeant and have his men around him and or sorry his uh, soldiers around him laughing and, and interacting with them but 
he's got kind of self-enforced brick walls that he puts up in order to, to protect himself because of what he's been through. It's like he doesn't want to get too attached because he doesn't want to go through the same pain he went through when he lost all his soldiers, but also... He's so fiercely protective that he will not allow that to happen regardless. I'm really surprised that Nathan Fillion did not become a huge Hollywood star, especially after Serenity, when he is absolutely a major on-screen cinematic presence. When, when they made the Green Lantern movie, he's actually played Hal Jordan in animated shows and done a really good job of it, as much as I know Hal Jordan, and would have been a better fit than Ryan Reynolds. He's a lot. The rest of the film would have been crap. <laughs> He he is though, and and this is this is the problem with the Uncharted thing now. He he's too old to play. He, he's a lot older than Ryan Reynolds. You know, he's he's at at the time. I, I think a lot of people, me included, because I will, will not exempt myself from this, kind of have him cemented in their minds as being the exact same person that he was when Firefly was was hmm. filmed. But he's twice the man he was then. Oh, oh, I'm not saying that he's not a fantastic <laughs> actor, but he's. <laughs> As you say. Um, <laughs> Enjoyed a lot of um, buns since then? That's terrible. Why? But no, you're true. It's, but yeah, no, at I mean, the same time, I mean, Robert Redford still gets roles just because but you're old. I mean, you can't back everyone, nothing here to see. Just in and a danger in the middle of it, me. Yes, Captain Hammer's here, hair blowing in the breeze. The day needs my saving expertise. It's important to take into consideration that uh, Hollywood casting directors are known for being prejudiced towards TV actors, and it's actually very hard for TV actors to cross over to the other medium. You can go the other way. They're, they're positively happy well, to have you well, from then, you know, then it's like uh, you're Hollywood actor in TV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, except for the fact that most TV is better than most films. Yeah, oh, I'm not exactly. saying I agree with it. <laughs> and most really good TV is better than most really good films. Yeah. Because they've got more time. The train job. Now, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about Hoban Washburn Wash and Zoe Washburn as well. Because the episode itself is... Is it the weakest one? Narratively speaking? Because this was thrown out really quickly. I would say it's the weakest one. It's it, still pretty good, though. It, yeah, it's still pretty yeah. good, yeah. It's, it's like saying this awesome pizza has one slice that has, you know... That Less has a pepperoni. Not much pepperoni. pepperoni on it, yeah. That's um, true. It is lacking in pepperoni. But it does have Greg Henry, who now looks like pepperoni. <laughs> who was, uh, incidentally, uh, the co-star with Nathan Fillion in... Slither. Leah, have you seen Slither? Uh, of course I've seen Slither. Of course, I, know, I know. Who am I talking to? Um, folks, if you like seeing slugs eat people, and who doesn't, <laughs> and you enjoy banter between Nathan Fillion and anyone, and you enjoy Elizabeth Banks, then for goodness sake, track down Slither. It's insane. I might own that on Blu-ray. <laughs> if there's a Blu-ray you need, it's Slither. <laughs> the history of this one, again, we're not going to talk about production too much here, but they, they put out the pilot to Fox, and Fox said, eh, mm. It's it's very long, isn't it? And we kind of want to start it in the middle of the action. So could you just give us an idea of what Firefly is going to be like on a week-to-week basis? Give us your average episode. You you want an average episode to start with. Okay, so they, like, over a weekend, just went away and they wrote this. And it was sort of phoned together, sort of kind of... Well, the problem is, as Sharon said, what was it that you said that the dialogue 
if you take away the everything that's happened in the pilot, seems like exposition, mm-hmm. whereas it's yeah. supposed but to be character. But if you've seen the, the pilot, it adds depth to what you already know about those characters. If you haven't seen the pilot, and this is the first thing you're hearing about them, it's very much, you know, you were a captain at Serenity Valley, and this happened to you, and it's left you in this particular As you know. state. As you well know, <laughs> yes. Which is the worst phrase ever. Ah. Um, but, I mean, it does speak volumes about the quality of, of Joss Whedon's writing and creative direction that this is the thing he banged out in a weekend because Fox told him to. Mm. And it's, it fits very well, I think, into the continuity if you're, if you're seeing it on DVD in the right order. But I can understand how, as a starting note for people who'd never seen or heard of it before, it still would have left them going, eh? Over the years, this has been my stalling point. Every time I start watching Firefly again, I go, oh, God, oh, I, I slog through uh, the pilot, which does, being an hour and a half, takes a lot longer to get through than, obviously, the others. Almost twice as long, some might say. It feels longer than watching two episodes back-to-back because they're introducing everyone as well. Um, there is, however, a bit in this episode that would never make me not want to watch it. Which, which is, is when Inara comes on to the... Um, it, it comes to find them. And Zoe's, I was weak. (laughs) (laughs) It just cracks me up every time. (laughs) Gina Torres. Should we talk about Zoe here? One of the things that uh, uh, Joss Whedon said on one of the commentaries, uh, in that way that he does where he will say something, he means the polar opposite of, but in such a dry way that it's kind of like an in-joke between him and the rest of his crew. He has said that uh, Gina Torres is short, homely and unconvincing as a soldier <laughs> it's wonderful to see directors insulting their actors in that kind of joshy way because it's the opposite of directors going oh she was so so good she was so uh, what was her name again it's the opposite of that false kind of just layering on the praise for each other that there's so much of in hollywood the idea that they could just mess with each other publicly on commentaries when they're not even in the same room, that's great. I love that. And uh, Joss Whedon does that quite a lot. I think that um, <laughs> what what makes Zoe such an interesting character is that she's the perfect straight woman. Like, she, if you look at just Firefly quotes and that kind of thing, she doesn't have a whole lot of just lines that stand by themselves. But there are mm. so many interchanges between her and whatever other character you might want to pick out that just she bounces off of everybody else just so perfectly that yeah. I, it's, it's wonderful. I know it's a difficult mission, but you and I have to get it on. I understand. We have no choice. Take me, sir. Take me hard. What, what strikes me about her is that she holds everything inside. There's actually well, one of my absolute favorite moments with Zoe is actually at the very, very end of Serenity. We'll talk about ju- that during the Serenity show. It's one of the last things that gets said, but she is holding everything inside her. And it's what she's been doing for years. And it's how she gets by. And so you can take everything away from her, but because she's built this hard shell around herself, she's not closed off, she's not robotic, but she's professional to the point of being, almost strangling her emotions. Well, I I would describe it as she has an off 
switch for our emotions. There are yes. occasions where when she's with Wash, she can be intimate and she can be relaxed and she can be uh, romantic. But when she's on a job, when she's in a fight, that that stuff gets turned off in her brain and she's just completely functional and just thinking about things in the moment. Well, she's still a soldier. She's still very much yeah. a soldier. She's got a job to do and mucking around with emotions is not going to get that job done. So she bottles it up and, uh, and, and gets on with it. The only time she doesn't is when she feels safe and comfortable, um, like when she's in, in, in a room with, with Wash. On a side note, she, like Nathan Fillion, was in Justice League Unlimited briefly. Uh, Nathan Fillion, anyone know who Nathan Fillion played in Justice League Unlimited? He played that cowboy superhero, I forgot his name. Um, yeah, well done, it was Vigilante. Ah, right. He's hardly in it, he drives a motorbike and he has an American accent. He's more notable for playing Hal Jordan repeatedly. Gina Torres played Vixen in uh, Justice League Unlimited. I think it was like two episodes. What, the reason I bring it up is because almost all of these guys have been in Justice League Unlimited at some point. Okay, so Hoban Washburn, played by Alan Tudyk. I love Wash. He's probably my favourite character on the show, mm. simply because every time he's on screen he makes me smile. Alan's performance is great. His sense of timing, uh, he, his face is what makes it for me. His reactions to what people say is always perfect. He's funny, but he's also very... Um, he has that quality of like a, a funny uncle, that he can be like ridiculous and silly, but if you need a hug, if you need support, if you need somebody to tell you everything's going to be okay, then he can be there for you as well. And I, I kind of get the sense that's why Zoe was drawn to him, because he's mm. so, compared to someone like Matt, Mal is intense and has some deep-seated emotional issues. He can be funny, but there are some problems there he needs to sort out. Wash is comparatively much more at peace, and I think that's what Zoe needs when she gets back from a, mi a mission. It's like Matt said about the emotional off switch. She needs somebody with whom she can use that off switch. And if she's got to... Uh, I mean, obviously, this is something that, that kind of gets looked at briefly in a, a later episode. But if she was with somebody like Mal, I think she would probably have those emotions switched off all the time because she'd be dealing with his stuff. I think Wash lets her let her guard down, which is very good for her. He, he's there to provide... Um much needed comic relief as well in the more sort of tense and depressing aspects aspects of the entire series normally uh, through judicious use of bucket loads of sarcasm which is uh, probably why it's so funny uh, he's almost certainly the most sarcastic member of the crew but it, you know that seems to be the way in which they they deliver levity which you know another reason which that makes this series so great really is that they do that because it's a, that's, that's a hallmark of, of Joss Whedon. I've noticed. I mean, I'm not I'm not a huge watcher of his stuff, but even watching bits of Dollhouse and stuff, I, I've noticed that bringing sarcasm in is is one of his ways of, of lightening, the, lightening the mood, as it were. Gets, yeah. gets probably my favorite line in like the entire series. Yes. Yes. This is a fertile land, and we will thrive. We will rule over all this land, and we will call it this land. I think we should call it your grave. Ah, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Ah, ah, ah. Mine is an evil laugh. 
There were just so many that popped into my oh, head yeah. all at I once. I mean, there are yeah. a lot, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Alan Tudyk is one of those guys who's just naturally funny, and uh, pretty much everything I've seen him in where he's supposed to be funny, he just handles the script with ease. Uh, do you, have you guys remembered, uh, do you remember in, in The Knight's Tale? Yeah. Yes, I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, he was talking about fonging all the time. And to be able to be funny next to Paul Bettany and Heath Ledger, who was funny in that as well. Just uh, to, But to actually be able to be naturally kind of, oh yeah, he's the funny one. And um, it seems like he was born to handle Joss Whedon's uh, script, but not just handle the script... To, to improv with it in the next one bushwhacked when they get taken aboard the government vessel when uh, Shepard is being seen to medically and interrogated he's the only one who's acting like there's no nothing sinister about it at all and uh, Zoe starts him off with about we're very private you know, people person. we're very private people and then suddenly definitely the legs the legs and and the area above the legs and where it joins the back and that's another great that. line from Washington. That whole area. <laughs> you ever been yeah. with a warrior woman? But that <laughs> wasn't even a line. That wasn't even in the script. That was just him spitballing, and they kept the camera rolling. <laughs> and it, fair play to the guy in front of him with a totally straight face. That must have been torturous. <laughs> I think one of the reasons yeah. I like Wash so much, though, um, he is very, very funny, but he's also the, the most sort of average bloke amongst the crew yeah. he's he hasn't got the the sort of the hasn't been burnt out and jaded by the horrors of war like uh mal and zoe he's not as young and innocent as as um kaylee he's not got the culture of inara he's just an average bloke doing his job and trying to have a bit of a laugh while he does it because alan tudyk does such a good job of being hilariously funny that that yeah. works so well it's never really elaborated on what his motivation is though why why he sticks with obviously once he's married to Zoe clearly but before that you know because he's 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 a you know pilots are presumably to a penny and well actually no when he was um he was actually in demand at the time when they hired him well uh, when you watch the episode this is I read up on this earlier today but it's in what the episode where they I think it's war stories mm-hmm. where they flash back to yeah, when, uh, when, when they he got hired yeah. he was most definitely in demand at that point oh, yeah. so why did he choose that? A lot of it's got to do with Zoe, and Zoe's got a lot to do with Mal. So there you have it. There's a link there. Basically, he won't ever leave Serenity because Zoe won't ever leave Mal, and Mal won't ever leave Serenity. And those four would stay together until. Another one of the reasons that you love him so much is that he's funny. And that, uh, they're all funny, but we like people that make us laugh. That's why Shaun of the Dead works the most as a horror movie, because you care about and are worried about people who make you laugh. A surprisingly good, uh, I think that it's on at least the American Netflix, if you guys haven't seen it, Uh, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. Mm -hmm. Very funny. Like, I wasn't expecting that Mm -hmm. much out of it, but, man, he nails it. (laughs) Because that's uh, Alan Tudyk, also one of the main characters in that. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I will check that out. Great film. Do do recommend. I would like to recommend to Naughty Dog, they consider Alan Tudyk. Also enjoy that Wash seems to be perfectly alright with the fact that his wife could completely kick his ass. Yes. Yes, one of his best lines in um, Armistice Reynolds. 
in love with a wonderful woman who can kill me with her pinky. <laughs> with her pinky, yeah. <laughs> that could hurt you. And she could. And actually, that's the point that, um, going back to Zoe, that, uh, that River makes. Um, it's another deleted scene. Simon is just feeling out, you know, where he stands on the ship when he's just come in. I think he, he finds out through Zoe that Malcolm could and would kill him if he felt that he had to. And he says to Zoe, what about, what if he asked you to kill me? Then I'd kill you. Okay, just in and out there. Uh, and, and that's what scares River about Zoe. She, Zoe scares her more than Jane because she can just switch off that emotion thing. Oh my God, she's the opposite of River. Oh my God. Yeah. River feels everything yeah. and Zoe can make herself feel nothing. Yeah. And River okay. can't switch it off. I wonder yeah, if she envies Zoe that eventually. That would have been a great episode. Oh, okay, we're going to do that quite a lot. Another notable thing, we'll be saying that a lot, another notable thing about this episode uh, is that everyone must by now surely recognise the armour that the Purple Bellies are wearing. Yep. Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers. Okay, so, uh, Bushwhacked. Now, as I recall, they actually showed them all completely out of sequence as well. Some, we may need to confirm this, but it'd be interesting to find out the exact... I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the actual airing dates and what episodes were which um, when we talk about the production next week. But Bushwhacked is the third one. And again, this one's pretty grim. This is the one where it sort of introduces... Well, it goes back to the Reavers, and we still haven't met the Reavers... We can talk about the Reavers now if you want, because they never got shown in the series themselves, but they did a really neat thing, which is to make everyone absolutely bonghua scared of the Reavers. One of the great things um, about the Reavers is actually how Jane reacts to them, because Mm. this is a character who is brave to the point of stupidity. And the vice versa. Yeah, yeah. He's willing to get into fights where there's absolutely no chance of him winning, and all his friends and him will probably end up dead. But any mention of the Reavers whatsoever, he's like, I'm not going anywhere near there. I'm not going near that ship. I'm not going near that sector. I'm not going near the, any planets that have ever been in contact with the Reavers. That's yeah. how scared he is. Have you guys all seen the film Sexy Beast? No. Oh, yes. Okay. There's a point where the character Dom is mentioned by, by a bunch of people who have been involved with crime before. So, there's, you know, some of them are harder than others. But when it's mentioned that Dom is coming, everyone goes very quiet. And there's this horrible feeling of sort of, oh, Christ, oh, no. So Dom is totally set up by everyone on screen without them having to say it. It's just their reactions. So the Reavers, if they've been like, I don't care what Reavers are there, we're going to take them all on, then they're not scary at all. But if everyone just retreats to their own personal little mouse hole and you see everyone preparing and hiding and holding back when they're sort of... And this actually was in, in the first one when they go past the Reaver ship. I actually kind of wish they hadn't shown the Reavers in um, Serenity now, in retrospect, because they're kind of just Urukai. Yeah. A little, a little more chaotic, but they're just really angry Urukai. I think and at that point you kind of had to show them, though. I, I don't... It, just the way that the story, and, and I mean, this is probably a discussion better saved for that, but yeah. um, but I, I don't know, I don't think you could have gotten away without showing them that entire film if that was the storyline you were going well, with. Well, I think they're, they're an example of the other extremity as well, and that they're, they're the embodiment of just pure chaos. You know, they're unpredictable, and mm. no one can understand what they're 
motivations are or why or who you know at this point who they are so i think in that interim they had to show it um but i agree you know, you know it's as soon as you, you have showed that then you've kind of you've blown it you've 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 revealed the prestige as it were so i the bricks are out of the briefcase indeed. yeah but I suppose, yeah, no, they, they, that was one thing they had to resolve. Another thing they had to resolve, but didn't really get the chance to in Serenity, was Shepard Daryl Book and what he was all about. Played by Ron Glass. And he's one of the guys who's really, really got deeply involved in Serenity. And, uh, you know, whenever you, he talks about it in interviews afterwards, um, I think he said something along the lines of he was looking forward to the day when he could think about Firefly and not cry. Which is lovely and sad. I really like this character because he he's very much the conscious uh, conscious of the group. We have a, a a large group of quite amoral characters, you know, to varying degrees, but most of them are willing to do bad things to accomplish their goals. Here we have a character who is trying their best to always make the right decision not always succeeding and sometimes he has to compromise but he is trying as we you mentioned alex this character does have a past and i think it's heavily hinted at that he was involved in some very serious like crime or something like that in his youth and part of his preacher uh, part of the reason why he's become a preacher is he's almost trying to redeem himself of what he's been doing this is pure speculation on my part but there is this sense of i've done bad things in my past and now i'm trying to be a better person see i actually know and you're you're dead right about him trying to make amends for it he uh, was picked up um from the street crime uh by the independents who drafted him as a mole in the alliance so he rose through the ranks of the alliance very quickly and uh, became very respected uh, but was planted there by the independents and then thanks to his sabotage thousands and thousands of I want to say soldiers and civilians uh, people from the alliance and associated with the alliance died in a horrible disaster of an attack by the independents which he was directly responsible for and um, he was summarily dismissed from the uh, alliance and then went immediately uh, into uh, seclusion and became a shepherd and it actually has. It was only a few years later that he then went on to Serenity. It really, it's, it was all connected with the war, which actually only finished like five, six years ago. So he's not been a shepherd for long. That's and and all of that sort of those, those crises and uh, and conflicts of of um, of spirit all come because he's got he's wrestling with the terrible things he's done really recently. Is that from um, the Shepherd's Tale? Yes. Ah, yeah, I've not read that. It's the only one I've not read. So this is the thing that I think has frustrated people, because there were going to be whole episodes devoted to this, and they're now having to get Joss and company to to give us, sort of partition us out little bits of info on what they'd planned and try to turn them into well-rounded stories, which I've always felt that comic book adaptations of... TV shows and films and, and animes and things have, have always been, if it's just like a one-shot or a couple of issues, have always been a really, like the, the, the Avatar um, story, it's like it's, a, it's a, a halfway step between that and actually seeing it on screen. It just never seems to be as significant or lasting. And because um, they're so obscure, it's not common knowledge as well. 
It's better than average, nothing, but I know how you feel about compromise. Yeah, it's it's a compromise. But ultimately, you know, what can you do? You, can, you can't get a budget for this kind of thing. Just to put things in perspective, folks, Serenity cost $39 million. And uh, anyone know its box office? 40. $38.869 million. That is appalling. It did very well here, though, didn't it, in the UK? It was, I think, fourth or fifth biggest for the year. But it didn't do very well worldwide. Uh, To put it in perspective, uh, Revenge of the Sith made $848 million. disgusting. Yes, it bong hao shuai is... You should go and steal nine pounds from George Lucas and go and give it to Joss. <laughs> okay. Tai Kong So Yu Do Shang Cho Saint Jai Wong Do Pi Gu. You're going to burn in a very special level of hell. A level they reserve for child molesters and people who talk at the theater. The special hell. And yet, Shepard Book is it's a very secretive character who throughout the whole thing seems to be kind of the... The moral opposition to Mal in terms of the fact that Mal finds himself very flexible and Shepard has a very specific moral code that's... It seems like he's complying with what has been set for him by a book. The irony is, though, you look at the way they respond to their, um, their inner ethics, if you like. Actually, book wavers more than Mal. There are a few mm. scenes where he's he's trying to stick to what he consciously believes to be the right thing, but you can see in his eyes he's thinking, is it actually, or am I just thinking this because this is what I've been told? And Mal, on the other hand, has this sort of very firm inner core of what the right thing is, and no matter what goes on around him, he does not break from that. I've been out of the Abbey two days. I've beaten a lawman senseless. I've fallen in with criminals. I've watched the captain shoot a man I swore to protect. And I'm not even sure I think he was wrong. I just think I'm on the wrong ship. Uh, Bush, Bushwhacked is the one where we get it hinted at at uh, uh, Shepard's past. And we also get that, that poor guy cutting on himself and acting like the Reavers. And uh, again, this is kind of an unpleasant episode to watch. And it's probably... It's less effective now because it's, it's, it's kind of a horror it's kind of an alien-style horror, and we know exactly what's happening. So that is diminished somewhat. I think one way they portray that well, though, is that you do have that sort of shaky cam whenever they're looking at the guy, and it's, you never quite get a close zoom on him to be able to examine what he's done to himself. It's A lot of it is sort of, you know, we, we, they talk a bit about what he might do, and then you kind of fill in the blanks yourself. Yeah. Which is always, I, I have had this demonstrated to me, what the mind will come up with is always going to be worse than what a scriptwriter can put on film. And that's why you shouldn't have seen the Reavers. If they catch us, if they come on board the ship, <laughs> they will rape us to death. If they catch us, they will, they rape, will us. rape us. That's, sorry, that's why I was laughing. It was totally I, inappropriate yeah, you know what? I laughed <laughs> at that point. But it's, I, that's, that's what I thought. <laughs> Not that that should be any funnier, but... No. Okay, everybody, let's take this next hill. Excuse me. Yeah, I'd appreciate it if you just let me run this. You know what? You had your chance. You're no leader. Up out of your seat. Let's blast. Don't listen to him. We're approaching a cool down down a gentle hill. No! The hill's a trap. Let's take the dirt road off to the side. No, guys, no. We're just cooling if down. If they catch us, they will rape us. Go for the cliff. Three. And three, two, one, jump! 
No! You're dead! You're dead! You're dead! Good jump! You're barely alive! Okay, now, nice cool down. Check your pulse rate. If they come on board the ship, they will rape us to death, eat our flesh, and sew our skin into their clothes, and if we're very lucky, they'll do it in that order. It's not supposed to be funny. It's supposed to terrify you, but it is dryly humorous, not blackly gallows humorous, nonetheless. Now, this is where it starts to really get good. I think if I'd just been sat down with Shindig and said, right, this is Firefly, from that episode onwards, I probably would have loved it straight away. But it's just that weird, slightly uneasy start of the, the first three episodes but, that uh, well, takes a while. while. While I agree with the quality and judgment there, I think that a lot of the humor in this episode and a lot of the, the writing, the, a lot of what makes the writing really excellent is is, not, yeah. is already knowing, ha- having some kind of basis for the characters. Mm. Although, having said that, I, I, I loved Serenity without having watched the entirety of the series, so uh, the, the quality of this episode... I mean, it is obviously funny, and you can see the social awkwardness in there, and it's a brilliant one for expressing how good Joss Whedon is at writing female characters. And this is the time when we can focus on Inara Sarah and Kay Winnett Lee, Kaylee Fry. Definitely either my very favourite or my second favourite episode. And one of the reasons that I, I like it so much... I read a brilliant quote from, from Joss Whedon on Twitter the other day that somebody had posted up, and it was a, an interview question that he'd been given, and the interviewer had said, why do you keep writing uh, strong female characters? And his response was, because you keep asking me that question. And in this episode, he very much nails his colours to the mast about where he stands on the, the idea of, of female characters, because ultimately, he doesn't write great female characters he writes great characters and that's across the board and that's to, to my mind that's how it should be but if you look at the way the, um, the the women of the crew are portrayed in this episode you can see where the power lies in all of the the um the scenarios that are set up and and in in ara's case particularly and i'm going to jump right to the end of the episode here mal wins the duel but she wins that fight Mm. she walks away from that victorious because of the way she's able to to handle herself and and her confidence in herself and actually going back to um the the first episode where um where book goes to her and, and talks to her about you know how morally shaken he feels because of what's gone on since he came on board that scene where he he's kneeling down in front of her and she puts her hand on his head and it, it's almost like that the, the benediction is coming from her and she's the whore I mean I know it's, it's something that's the subject of, of various jokes and whatever and the, the whole thing about the, the companion setup being totally legitimate and that's you know one of the, the running jokes on the ship but that's that sort of says how Joss Whedon feels about that, that setup the idea of the male 
priest patriarchy is totally subsumed before this woman who has you know, more experience of the world that he now finds himself in. And I love that. I think that's awesome. It happens so rarely in a way that, that doesn't, it's going to sound insane considering what everything I've just said about it, but in a way that doesn't need to be remarked upon. It just is. I think Noah may be my second favourite character in the entire show. Partly because she's uh, played with such incredible charm and grace by uh, Marina Baccarin. Uh, partly because she's actually really funny. It's, it, you don't really think about it that much, but so many of her lines... There's a kind of a Beatrice Benedict thing going back and forth between her and Mal the whole time. And she, because she's so emotionally involved with him and he keeps that way below... Not, not way below the surface, but a little bit below the surface... <laughs> And when we get to see what she really means come out through her sarcasm. So when she finds out that he's married, she's like, I wish you hundreds of fat children. But because she's one of his extremely strong female characters, he's able to explore huge aspects of the culture through this one character. She's such a crucial part of Serenity's crew in terms of that she is their key to the higher society. And she's what the higher society should be more like. In the same way as um, Uncle Iroh, this is for you, Josh, yeah. is what the Fire Nation should be like. Inara is what the core systems should be more like. She's, she doesn't use her worldliness, her outer worldliness, or her inner worldliness, to uh, stomp on others. In fact, it's one of the things that she actually finds really repellent. And when um, uh, her rich clients try to impress her with, look what I can do, look how many people I can command, they come off as really obnoxious, and you can tell that even if she tries to hide it. But she is very good at making other people feel good about themselves, and she's very good at using what she has and her unique perspectives to actually make, make the world better for the other people. When she's talking to Kaylee and they're talking about shopping and hairdressing and stuff, it's to bring Kaylee out of into herself and not just to make Kaylee more of a girly girl. It's all for Kaylee. And that's I, I love that about Inara because I'm kind of guarded against girly, girly girls. Uh, I feel like I'm taking all of your lines here, Chef. No, nope, that's fine. <laughs> you want to carry on talking about no, her? No, 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 no. You, you've... Summed this up quite nicely. But yeah, okay, someone else on Inara, or indeed Kaylee. Does someone want to say something about Inara, because I was going to jump in with Kaylee? I would love to jump (laughs) in with Kaylee. Actually, one one thing I'd like to say about the two of them um, is that, and this this is another point at which I suspect Fox execs started putting their foot down, is that between them, they provide a brilliant exploration of the sexual mores of this universe. And the fact that there is a much more relaxed attitude towards sex and it being incorporated into everyday life that comes, you know, from Inara's very formalized, ritualized um, uh, interactions with with sex and Kaylee's much more um, relaxed and and natural um, attitude about it. Um, And the fact that that's coming from two female characters, I think, is quite a strong point. If it was, if it, if there was a male character involved with that, there'd always be this slight element of, is that, you know, are, are there ulterior motives within that? The fact that it's coming from two female characters makes it work much better, I think. But I suspect that the Fox people didn't like that too much. Josh, do you want to jump in there with Kaylee? Kaylee is the heart of the Serenity crew. Um, 
what I like about her is that she, more than anyone, she is the. I think she's the most deeply connected with the ship. Um, the, there are a couple of scenes with her when she's just in the engine room, and it's like she's at, at one with her environment. It, it's the sh- her and the ship are one. They're kind of this. They're kind of spiritually linked with each other, and I really like that connection with the the ship and her. Kaylee is an interesting mix between like a nerdy girl and a like a girly girl. She has like the girly girl qualities that you were talking about. She's quite naive and she's interested in pretty dresses and and beautiful music and stuff like that. But she's partly because it's exotic and it's not the sort of thing yeah. she's ever surrounded by. But she she has that kind of OCD kind of mentality that a lot of people have. I mean, we encounter it more with pe- with movies and um, video games and technology. Um, I, but it's interesting to having that applied to somebody who's interested in ships and engineering and stuff like that. She talks about it the way we talk about films and the way we talk about video games. There's a scene in this... Almost like light Asperger's syndrome. Yeah. There's a scene in this um, in this episode where she's talking to the old veterans, and she's completely schooling them. She's to- mm-hmm. she it, the conversation they're having reminded me of conversations I've had on podcasts where mm-hmm. we, we're you know talking about something as if we're on equal terms, and then somebody who's clearly much more uh, well informed and well educated just ah no actually I think you're fine. usually Gary yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, she's Somebody else talk. <laughs> no, no, um, it's, it's what Dan Floyd said, and I'll keep coming back to this throughout my podcasting career because it was the best thing ever about how to make a really great female character in how much and how, uh, what she does and does not accept about her role in society. Now, interestingly enough, there's not a straightforward social moray for women in the verse because they've got women everywhere because it's a Joss Whedon thing. But Kaylee, very specifically, she wants to, to be the engineer, but she also wants to wear the pretties. When Mal makes fun of her for wanting to have the dress, and so she, she says something like, uh, she'd be like a sheep walking on its hind legs. That's crushing one aspect of her that she's, she's trying to cultivate and has never had really that much of a chance to breathe. It's not about feminism. It's not about girl power. It's about just... Just feeding that aspect of yourself. It's about feeding all the aspects of yourself. It's about not being a stereotype and being able to acknowledge that there is more than what, you know, what is it? No reasonable person is one thing. So you can't create a character who is one thing and expect them to be interesting. And the, Mm. the, the scene where she gets to be stood there in this fantastic dress eating strawberries dipped in chocolate or whatever it is that she's got holding court about machines which she loves basically that's that's her moment she's mm. she gets that's to, marrying together everything that she wants exactly in that's that's yeah. giving her a, a point at which she can be feel totally fulfilled totally fulfilled but you know that all of the the elements of her are being served in some way and that happens so rarely for anyone um and i think what that that comment that um that dan made about the um interesting female characters 
rejecting the, the role that the society puts on them. In all seriousness, I think any interesting character, regardless of their gender, there are going to be elements of, you know, here's the role that they've been squeezed into. If they uh, refute that and say, no, that's not me, that makes that person immediately more interesting than someone who just goes, oh, okay, then I'll, I'll do whatever society yeah, They have to, to re- refute and something, otherwise there's no conflict there in their character. Exactly. But I think those those straitjacket type roles tend to come more often with female characters because certainly from my perspective, and I, I will admit I'm biased when I look at a, a film or a TV show or whatever, it's the female characters I look to first because it's, it's almost like my brain's going, okay, well, where would I slot in if I was in this universe? And, and There's a very statistical reason for that. There are far, far higher percentage of male writers who can't really speak to the female condition unless they've actually gone out of their way to do so. A lot of her humour, because she's very funny as well, um, is derived from the fact that she's both quite innocent, but Mm. also completely filthy and blunt. So these really... The most funny moments is when, like, Anara leaves and she says, have good sex. (laughs) Mm. Or in the the film where she said, I ain't had nothing twixt my nethers that weren't run on batteries. (laughs) <laughs> uh, which immediately makes Mal uh, react. Uh, he protests immediately because he has begun to see Kaylee as like a younger sister, and you don't want to hear about the sex that your sister's having, especially not with herself. He's quite, he's, especially he's, not with other people. He's quite prudish anyway. Cause, I mean, he's prudish, yeah. prudish towards Nara's occupations. So, I mean, that's especially. part of the character. Yeah. He goes out of his way to say he uh, is disrespectful of her occupation, but not her, the woman. That's the line that he draws, even though he is. He's a total blunderbuss when it comes to his, his insulting her. He, he, there's, there's too much collateral damage, and you can always tell when he's gone way too far. I wonder if part of his resentment for, for what he refers to as the lie of Inara's job is to do with... Well, it's, it's got to be tied in with how he feels about the alliance. The whole, um, what, what Zoe says in the deleted scene about they got strung along for a week while the alliance and the independents tried to thrash out um, surrender terms. Meanwhile, more and more people were dying. That environment of diplomacy and negotiation would have become so much more um, horrendous to him even than it was before as a result of that. But I know, and I know this is obviously something that we'll talk about when we um, when we do the next episode. But when you look at how he behaves towards Nandi in the Heart of Gold, it, she's she's the same thing, but he doesn't react to her in at all the same way as he does to Inara because she. It's because she's Alliance. Yeah. Because she's respectable. And he's not. That's the thing. He's the the attitude that he seems to take towards it is that he resents the fact that or he implies that she will take anybody with money, which she has made the point time and time again. That's not how it works. Companions choose their clients very, very carefully. It's not just about the money, but there is that first filter of you've got to be able to afford to be on the client registry which mm. Mal couldn't afford to be on the client registry. So there's no way that, that he'd ever be in that in that circle and it becomes a class divide thing yeah and Atherton Wing when he actually uh, he, when he's asking her to come and live with him it's not because he wants a wife who is uh, has good graces it's because a companion is something that he can actually show off and say look I've got my own companion 
it's because uh, you you theorize Sharon that that she had known him before and he wasn't quite as horrible then and that you your theory was that he'd come into his fortune in the interim time. Yeah, I mean the the, the way she reacts to him to start with and the way she talks about him to Mal and I mean a lot of that could have simply been her trying to annoy him. Um, that's quite likely, but. Um, in the way that you see her behave and interact with her other clients as well, I get the impression that she knew Atherton when he was much younger, much more unsure of himself, and, and her she seems to be particularly drawn to people who need her support, who need her, um, her particular brand of, of therapy, if you like, I suppose, um, to, to bring them out of themselves and, and get them on the road towards who they're supposed to be. I wonder if she, she went through that with Atherton when he was younger and was coming back to see him again, expecting him to have kind of blossomed. And in actual fact, he's turned into this arrogant little goser. And that, you know, angers her quite a lot. Hence why she ends up, you know, I mean, she, she obviously when um, they have the, the scene where Mal's in the, the hotel or the, the rooms or whatever it is that they've got for him and she goes and, and gives him the sword lessons the implication is she's been with Atherton she's been in his bed so she hasn't turned down that side of her role and mm. yet when it gets to the dual side of things she totally sides with Mal and, and obviously her, her reaction to Atherton's behaviour at the very end is, is to reject him completely I think it's a good point about um, uh, Inara sort of taking on jobs that allow her to bring people to their, their full potential which, which is actually happens again in Janestown it seems to be another job she's taking uh, yeah. where she's, she's helping someone to grow into being uh, an adult. I really love the scene with Banning. That loathsome girl with her horrible cronies. It, it reminds me of uh, the Tales of Barsing Say episode, uh, Josh, with those horrible girls being sort of passive-aggressive to, um, to Kaylee. And, and actually, when she acts like she's trying to help Kaylee out, like, you need to see to your girl. She's not very good. And yeah, just the, the kiss-off line of uh, Sharon. Do you probably know this one off by heart? Probably took a dozen slaves a dozen days to get you into that dress. Of course, your daddy tells me it takes the slip of a schoolboy's wink to get you out of it. <laughs> Forgive my rudeness. I cannot abide useless people. Because that highlights how much use Kaylee is, which is tons. Well, that ship wouldn't fly without her. Yeah. Well, there's a great scene later on where she's surrounded by um, a, a horde of uh, men who are all desperate to talk to her because she's talking about something real um, yeah. something that they actually make sense and understand and, and one of them tr- dares to try and uh, ask her for a dance and gets very quickly told to shut up because she's that still scene, talking that scene could have turned into a Barbara Streisand musical with <laughs> all dancing around her uh, I mean the, the whole episode is a kind of allegory for period dramas like you know Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, yeah. I mean, it's set up almost the same way, and uh, you know, the, it, even like the way the sets are dressed and the, and and you know the the obviously what they're wearing and and the whole premise of there being a duel to to settle the matter and stuff. It you know, which kind of the music goes into dang, dangerous liaisons and yeah, the music and the mm. dancing. It's uh, and Moulin Rouge actually because she could she could marry the Duke if she wants to, but she goes for the yeah, Bohemian. So uh, it, it you know I think it. The, the, you know, the whole episode is really set up to sort of show that you know this is something we can do with this. We can take this universe and apply it to lots of different 
genres and spin it into something completely different. And I, I think that's something they do. They sort of experiment with quite a lot with with Firefly. There's there's some up, upcoming shows which do similar things. Um, and uh, you know, again, I mean, you're going to mention this lots of times, aren't you? But you just wonder what what would happen if they'd have made more. Where else they would have gone? Yes. Um, there's four more awesome things about this episode because it's so packed with things. One, Inara has to bring a doorknob to Mal's uh, hotel room because rather than key cards, they use their own like special key-coded doorknobs. Uh, two, the uh, the line, uh, if you if you need so we, someone can offer you use of a sword. Fine. Use of a what now? Mal he actually says use of a, of a SWAT. SWAT is actually what he's saying. I only picked up <laughs> for the first time the last time I watched it. It actually says SWAT. So changes halfway through the word. <laughs> just, just the other one is, of course, when he gets that use of a sword, and um, when he finally gets out the time they are ground, and the entire audience cheers. Mercy is the mark of a great man. Oh, oh. guess I'm just a good man. Oh, oh I'm all right. But also, we get to see Summer Glau, who has up to that point been pretty quiet. Suddenly laps into this weird badger river hybrid. So what? Petty thief with delusion <laughs> standing? Sad little king of a sad little hill. Yeah? Why'd she talk? She's got a secret. No, I'm... Sure. Uh... i got a secret. More than one. Don't seem likely I'd tell him to you, now do it. Anyone off Dighton Colony knows better than to talk to strangers. You're talking about enough for the both of us, though, ain't you? And then a dozen like you. Skipped off home early. Monographed jobs here and there. Spent some time in the lockdown, but less than the claim. Now you're what? Petty thief with delusions standing? Sad little king of a sad little hill. Nice to see someone from the old homestead. Not really. Call me if anyone interesting shows up. And she's... Uh, she's fantastic at that point. And uh, we can talk about Summer Glau in for, for this next one, but, um, yeah, it, it just comes out of nowhere. And she's actually um, not dissimilar, in fact, to Drusilla, if you're a Buffy fan. This episode's odd because it is... It is every time I watch it, I'm, I'm completely uh, enthralled by it. And he's, and he's brilliant. But when I'm... If I'm watching the series... And I realise it's next. I'm always a little bit... Uh, and I really don't know why. Because every time I watch it, it's brilliant. You don't want to watch shit? Every, every time I get to it, I get to the end of the previous episode, and I'm always a bit... Uh, not not uh, disappointed, I'm always a bit... Uh, and I don't know why it is, but I, don't, I never look forward to it. But when I watch it, it's brilliant. Mm. Okay. I, don't, I really don't understand why. I think I'm just... A, well, maybe next weird. time, <laughs> we'll go... Yeah, it should be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel that way about Bushwhacked. I feel that way about the next one. Yeah, Safe is a little bit um, dour. Although it does have a couple of the greatest lines in the series. It's also got it my favourite favorite scene from the entire thing, I think. Okay, right. Well, this is our opportunity to talk about Dr. Simon Tam and uh, uh, River Tam. Oh, hang on. Uh, Marina Baccarin, just as you, so you guys know, plays Black Canary in Justice League Unlimited. Okay, so Simon and River and Safe. What were your what were your bits that you love? 
Um, Matt first. Uh, the, the bit, well, it, it's, it comes later in the episode. Um, it's the the bit where River's dancing, specifically where she's dancing. That I don't know why. That I always well up big time at that. After everything she's been through and, and all the, the the mood swings and, and everything, all the problems that she's had and she's caused, she's mm. back to being a sixteen year old girl, or back to being a fourteen year old girl, really, because the last two years of her life haven't really existed, and she's yeah. just purely having fun. And Simon is just enjoying watching his sister have fun, and for the two of them, it's exactly where they should have been, and where they can never really be again at this point. And it just gets me every time. And she's also a phenomenally good dancer as well, of course. I think she was actually a trained dancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's, yeah. A, she's, she's a, a, a... Hence that fighting yeah. style. I like again. It takes place later in the episode. The um, the switcheroo uh, between um, the uh, the girl telling Simon, "Look, you know you're needed here. This is you know th- these people need you. We have no medical um, help here, and people are dying. And you could actually be of some use." And you, you start to think, actually, maybe he does. Maybe you know this this place is actually something that you know you've, you've seen the, the he's bought there by a bunch of thieves. But do we judge them all on these couple of guys? There are actual people here. And then when she finds out about River um, talking to Ruby, she's like, "You're an angel. That's brilliant." And it's like, "Wow, they've actually found a home here." And then when River reveals, "Oh no, I, she didn't say it. I, I I read her mind." Suddenly it goes from this is in the realms of what I understand. I'm going to call it angelic and the work of God. To this is in the realms of something I don't understand clearly the work of Satan and then there's a sudden horrible switch around and it's like oh no 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 undo it undo it undo it it's an angel again and but it's already too late and suddenly you realise oh well great so we're back in Salem brilliant brilliant not in any way to judge Americans based purely on hillbillies but that's who they end up smack bang in the middle of and uh, okay right so what you guys want to talk about Simon River anyone want to speak on these Simon's Simon's core quality for me is his selflessness. Mm. Um, there's a line that Mao says later on in the series. I, no, I think it's this episode. Is that he mm-hmm. says you can describe Simon in many ways, but coward isn't one of them. Um, he's kind of he's braver than he he is capable. Um, mm. He's willing to throw himself in these horrible situations to save his sister, willing to die for his sister, as he demonstrates at the end of this episode. Even though he's not a warrior, he's not a fighter, but he has the he has the will to fight, and I think that's what's important. That even though he can't kick as much ass as Zoe or Mal can, he is willing to make the kind of sacrifices a trained soldier would be as well. He's very self-doubting. He has this um, 
he appears to be arrogant at first. He presents himself as somebody who is quite uh, arrogant about his skills and what he's capable of. But as he talks with other characters, and especially in Nara, you realise that he's constantly doubting himself um, at every corner, at every decision he's making. Um, it's a quality um, that actually I relate to with Simon, is that he doesn't allow himself to enjoy any decisions or anything he's done he's constantly and this is something i do and i hate that i do it that i am ripping apart everything i do and so when people tell me um what i did um is hang on did you just say this is something you do when you hate the fact that you do it that is meta yeah no no yeah the quality where when you do something you assume it's crap and when people tell you it's crap you don't suddenly go, oh, wait a minute. I, you just go, oh, yeah, you're right. I was expecting that. Um, and that's something I relate to. I think that element of Simon and that self-doubt comes through occasionally, as you said, with Inara as well, and also with Book. I think there's a degree of, of the fact that they're all kind of alliance-guided in that. That that mindset that you're talking about always strikes me as coming from somebody else telling you what your standards are, what your goals are. So you can never quite assess them properly and, and you know, from the heart because they're not really yours or on some level you doubt whether they're really yours. Whereas Mal, who's fiercely independent, Wash, who doesn't really answer to anybody with the possible exception of Zoe, um, and you know the, the the characters who have much um, seem to have much more freedom in themselves. They form their own guidelines. They you know they set their own standards, and therefore they can feel that when they achieve something, they really have achieved it because it's come from them. Well, I think with Simon and Anara, they're the only two members of the crew that are actually professionals. They have a profession that they've been trained in. You know, uh, presumably for several years uh, in Anara's case as well, and um, and hence the relationship between those two is is that of almost slightly looking down on everyone else. Um, you know, you talked about arrogance. I don't, I'm not so sure it's arrogance. It's more a case of you know we are a different, almost like a different class with with a kind of middle class, if you like, on on this crew. I'm not sure what you mean by almost. They totally yeah, oh yeah, are. Yeah. Well, Simon certainly is. Yeah, but uh, I'm it's not summed sure up about nicely with the basketball game, actually. That if you're going to call it basketball, where they're they're looking down from the balcony and and basically yeah, not really understanding it, yeah. Yeah, what's going not, on. It's not for us. Yeah, it's just right. I'm not, so River likes it. I mean, ultimately, River transcends class because she has no um, illusions about how she should be. No, well, you know, at that age, um, you know, and going by her mental age, uh, she, she wouldn't do. She still has the innocence of youth. That 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 youth that hasn't been established yet. You know, something you, it's something you become. Particularly if you if you if you have a profession, it's something you sort of grow into. You start out thinking, I'm not going to end up like that, and you almost certainly do. Simply because of you know that's the way that the you know as a as a professional you're molded and and, and the way you become and. And I, th- I think that's really where they're, they're, you know, they're, their attitudes come from. I don't, yeah, I, you know, I think it can be perceived as arrogance, but I don't think it comes across as arrogance. Oh, and there I, is I, don't, I don't think it is arrogance. I think it's just a show that they put on because that's their class. And it's, that's, 
confidence. There's a difference yeah. between Inara and Simon, though, because Inara looks down on people for what they do. Yeah. Um, as you know, when they are you know being stupid and low and base, she she look down on them for it. Whereas Simon looks down on the rest of their crew simply because of what they are, not what they're doing. He looks down on them because he's who he is, and that's what he's used to doing. I don't see any difference between the class paranoia between Simon uh, being somewhat freaked out and disgusted by what goes on in Serenity and Jane purposefully excluding Simon because he's all so high and mighty. And uh, this, uh, It's something that I've, I've complained about before, this, this, this sense of, oh, you think you're better than me? You think you're better than me? And it's like, oh, you, really, you're doing ten times worse but by actually perpetuating that thing. When, when Jane goes through his stuff and reads his diary and goes, today I was pompous and my sister was crazy. And it's, it's, that's what he actually <laughs> thinks of him at that point. And it, it's just coming from a place of anxiety, social anxiety. Yeah. Uh, as for River, I, you know, taking the, the series and the movie as a whole, I think uh, her character really doesn't you know, come into its own until the second half of the TV series. I know there's there's lots of uh, you know sort of memorable scenes like uh, like the one mentioned earlier by Matt, but I think her character starts to really establish itself as as a as a, you know as a, a core member of the crew, and, and they start to hang some really interesting stories and uh, and concepts on her when you get into that second half of the series, especially objects in space. Yeah, which, yeah, we, yeah, we can, yeah, indeed. <laughs> we can follow up on that next week actually once we've seen them again. Yeah, well, I think this is this is a turning point for everybody. Um, it's a turn point. Mal finally accepts them as part of his crew. They, uh, Simon finally mm. accepts that they are part of that crew. It's not simply uh, a means to get to another place. Uh, and it's the first step towards realising they're not going to find a better home than Serenity. Yeah, yeah. And, and Simon relaxes and, and River starts to, to come out of her almost catatonia at times. She starts to become a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more as she should have been, if that makes sense. And this is a, it's this episode that does that. I just yeah. wish they they hadn't gone down the the witchcraft route because it, it is it too easy. Well, it's too easy. It totally ruins the episode for me because I I yeah. don't feel that that would fit into this world. This is a world grounded with starships. Well, no, no, exactly. This is a world grounded <laughs> of, of people who are sort of the Earth, you know. Uh, but it's also a world in which people can travel between planets, and the concept of there being witchcraft is is just nonsensical. I know, I know. You know, even today we have you know parts of Africa and South America that still still believed in, but people are still executed for being sorcerers in some parts. Indeed, of the world. they're not frontiers as such. That's more of a kind of that's more of a kind of native belief. Um, Zan, but there has been a definite regression as well. Oof, yeah, I don't. I, well, I'm just it's just my own view. I just do not think this is a route that would this this to me doesn't fit within this world. If this had been a kidnapping for money or for some other reasons, then I could have bought mm. it, bought it. But but burning no, at the stake, that was, it was planet. just ridiculous at that point. They had a stake right mm. there for burning. No, <laughs> I they kidnapped them. I, I thought was fair enough, but yeah, I wasn't overly keen with the way it ended. Um, the, the the witchcraft thing it did seem a little bit too snap and all of a sudden oh she's a witch I mean it seemed a little bit too sudden it's a big leap a bit too rushed between needing a doctor because they need this specialist medicine to then say we've got got Mm. a witch 
Okay, actually, now that you say it like that, that is somewhat convincing. I still like it, but uh, but yeah, there is a slight inconsistency there, Josh. Well, well, the thing is, I I I don't care how far we progress as a human a human race or how much technology progresses, there is still going to be extraordinarily stupid people. Even <laughs> even now, I I listen to stories and I am amazed that in 2012 people do the things they do. I mean, the Westboro Baptist Church, for me, is the ultimate example of that. Example, tell um, us. Well, the Westboro Baptist Church hate uh, gay people uh, and Brilliant. picket people's funerals and say that, you know, these people should die in hell um, and that they believe in God's divine hate and that this hate is good. And these people exist now. This is not the medieval times or some, you know, archaic thing. This is happening now. And I think, well, if these immensely stupid, ignorant, hate-filled people exist now, then there is still going to be immensely stupid, hate-filled people in the future. Sharon, what was that quote you said from uh, a guy who likes to go to anti-gay rallies and stand next to the guy screaming, God hates fags, oh, uh, with a placard yes. that reads, please ignore, ignore my, my angry ex-boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> We've established that to some people, it's a little unbelievable that they start talking about witchcraft at this point. Uh, ultimately, though, it, it comes down to the fact that they had to show that River's powers would make people deeply uncomfortable. And if they were dumb people, then it's, it's not much of a stretch for them to start saying, you know, she's a freak. Uh, ultimately, it's just to replace the word witch with mutant, and you've got your X-Men right there, uh, underlining how uh, River really doesn't fit in and needs to be in a place of safety. So, you know, she may be a witch, but she's our witch. Well, look at this! Here's the guy who's just in the nick of time! Big damn heroes, sir. Big we cut. Right, interrupt, folks. Y'all got something that belongs to us, and we'd like it back. Gun her down. Girl is a witch. Yeah, but she's our witch. So cut her the hell down. There are things she does and ways she behaves that remind me massively of Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. Um, frankly, both versions of Sarah Connor, the, the younger, more naive one and the, um, the haunted, crazy one from um, T2, which obviously fits quite nicely with Summer Glau being in... Um, Terminator Sarah, Sarah Connor Chronicles. Um, okay, so I can at least now say massive props to Summer Glau, who was what, definitely the young, youngest regular cast member uh, and had the biggest role to fill, possibly accepting uh, uh, Nathan Fillion here, in terms of that she couldn't just, you can't just turn up and be River. You can't just like do a Sean Connery and go, hey, how's it going, you know, to, to have a sip of coffee and then suddenly lights her up. She has to actually act like someone who is deeply disturbed and broken. And there, 
there are so many little inflections and so many little nuances that she, she does that make me feel like she's actually been studying videos of people who actually are um, not all there or uh, have, have had something you know very traumatic happen to them and has really been working that into her performance. It's actually not too far away from Heath Ledger's Joker in terms of the fact that it's actually quite creepy to watch and, and how much she throws herself into it. I wouldn't say exactly that it's creepy, but there are... For me, it's the moments of lucidity. It's the the few moments where she comes back to herself and she's fully there and she's basically behaving. And I, th- I think there's a point in Safe, actually, where she outright says it. She she makes Simon understand that she knows what's happening to her. She knows what she does, but she can't... She's got no control over that. And there's, it almost seems like um, sometimes people who are going through um, sort of a, a dementia... It's that it's not really the the moments where they're not themselves that are the heartbreaking ones. It's the moments where they are, and they understand what's happening to them, but they can't stop mm. it. Okay, um, I'm going to amend the word creepy to affecting, effective, affecting, affecting. Is affecting yeah, affecting, yeah, right? affecting's a word. Yeah. yeah, it affects me. Should we move on to our Mrs. Reynolds? Yes, please. But she was naked and all articulate. Would you like me to wash your feet? Call it Vera. Uh, baby geese, goslings. They were juggled. Good Bible. The special hell. I wish you hundreds of fat children. How drunk was I last night? But we've been wed, aren't we to become one flesh? That's why I never kiss them on the mouth. Well, my days are not taking you seriously. They're certainly coming to a middle. Oh, this is... Yeah, I, I unless I see one in the next seven, this is my favourite episode. It's competing with there Shindig isn't, for me. It's, yeah, it's up against Shindig for me as well, but it, there isn't a second wasted in this, and it's even better once you know Saffron's game. Oh, uh, by the way, Summer Glau played Supergirl in uh, Superman, Batman, Apocalypse. Uh, no idea where any of these things are. Seriously, um, uh, DC Universe stuff, they're, they're big fans of Firefly, clearly. Uh, okay, right, so um, it starts off with the best cold opening ever. Uh, is it a cold opening if it's actually definitely related to the rest of the show? Okay, it's the best opening ever before pre-credits opening, which is Mal dressed as a woman. <laughs> I don't think you want that. I see I married me a powerful, ugly creature. How could you say that? How could you shame me in front of new folks? That interplay between them, followed pachung immediately by, by by the stick 'em up thing. That I mean, that would have been a brilliant like first. Oh no, it doesn't work as a first ever episode because you need to know who Mal is first. But it's it's it would work brilliantly if there was if it was um, the opening to say a sequel movie where it's like bringing you back to the characters, boom, and suddenly bloke in a dress. Doesn't get much funnier than that. But then again, I'm I was British. Say, you are British. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then you get the whole the, the marriage ceremony and the incredible uneasiness of Mal when he realizes that he has somehow inadvertently managed to score himself an exceptionally hot, extremely naive wife. Uh, Christina Hendricks, who plays Saffron, uh, has, again, a dual role of being able to be incredibly convincing as this sort of shy, retiring mouse version of Saffron, and then the femme fatale version as well, which she plays brilliantly in both cases. I'm so glad that Christina has managed to go off to greater fame and fortune Mm. with Mad Men 
uh, one of the few actresses um, or actors in this series that has managed to really, you know, propel forward. She's great. Uh, This is my second favourite episode. What's your first favourite? My first favourite episode is another episode with her in, which is later on. Oh, what? Trash. Yeah. She's a great character. This episode is great when you watch it first time because there's that slow, like, you know, eventually figuring out what her game is. But it's even better watching it a second time. It's Mm. like... Watching her play them. Yeah, you notice little things about, you know, her facial expressions, the way she reacts to, you know, what certain characters say that clue you in on, uh, you know, what her final play is going to be. But Mm. it's done so subtly and it's masterful piece of work. And it's really awkward when you watch it the first time because you're like, oh, how could this poor girl have been treated like this her entire life? And you feel really sorry for her. But when you see it again and you've got everyone, just all this interplay back and forth, it's all from your, you're watching it from her perspective at that point because you're seeing them as these buffoons bickering with each other in an extremely uh, entertaining manner. We always hoped you kids would get together. What's her name again? Gathering everybody in the hold and the extreme awkwardness of having to explain what the situation uh, they have found themselves in. And specifically Mal's um, going out of his way to try to be the guiding force in her life. And, you know, you could just tell when you're watching it a second time that she just inside, she's rolling her eyes and going, Seriously? couple of things that I really, really... I, there's a lot of things to like in this episode, but um, <laughs> the, the couple that stand out for me, uh, one of them is later in the episode when you get that kind of brief face-off between uh, Saffron and Inara. Just the, the whole exchange of, oh, you're good. You're really good. <laughs> uh, that and um, an earlier one where uh, when she's making Mal dinner and just how completely uncomfortable Wash is with that whole thing because he knows mm. that Zoe is like staring daggers at him this whole time, just daring him to say something. What? Go ahead. Remember Tell me to fetch you a drink. again? <laughs> yes. Is that Psyduck? Yeah. It's, he can't even comment on the actual scene. Oh. By the way, Christina Hendricks was in All-Star Superman as Lois Lane. <laughs> Well, these animated things. They are indeed oh. animated. Uh, some of them are actually really quite good. The, the whole awkward situation of when Inara finds Mal and goes, oh, Mal, you fool, kisses him, and then passes out. And then they're coming around and she's like, yes, I hit my head, just like, wash. Yeah, that's, that's what happened. Don't need seeing to... Nope. Yeah, her, her evasiveness at that point. Because this all you know, plays in with her, uh, her relationship with Mal and the sort of tempestuous, how much do they really mean to each other thing going on. There's one exchange between Zoe and Wash uh, when they're in the uh, pilot uh, area of the ship. Um, Otherwise, the, the cockpit. cockpit. Sorry. Uh, you are not allowed to fly this ship. <laughs> and they're just, you know, casually talking about what's going on with Mal and uh, Saffron, and they're joking about. And then Zoe suddenly says, well, of course, the man rushes to her defense. And that kind of came out of nowhere for me, because like, it felt like Wash and Zoe were just joking, taking the piss out of this situation. And then Zoe attacks her husband for trying to defend this 
girl. I didn't quite understand where that was coming from Zoe. Not in a bad way. I just, I, I was curious as to why Zoe got so angry about Wash defending this girl for even in the joking kind of way. I don't have a suggestion on that one. Yeah. There are many, many elements to the way that Zoe reacts to Saffron and her, you know, she's, she's not exactly, she doesn't see through Saffron to start with, but she's certainly not as, she's not kind to her like Kaylee is. She's not, you know, just generally amused by the whole situation, um, although she is to start with. But I think part of it by that point is her relationship with Mal is a very complex one. And I think once she starts to realise that Saffron is not just going to get put back where she came from, and Saffron's carrying on in a manner that there is, I'm going to guess, that as a a man there's something quite appealing about the notion of having somebody who looks up to you and worships the ground you walk on and, and, you know, is willing to cook for you and wash your feet or blah, blah, blah. Um, And I think that there's, she's a little bit worried that Mal is going to decide to keep her. I don't think she thinks that Saffron deserves him. She doesn't think she's good enough for him. But it's interesting that she attacks Wash because at the end of the exchange, Wash says, I get what you're saying and I agree with you. So I'm confused as to why she suddenly goes, well, why why are you defending her? And Wash is like, whoa, 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 wait a second. We were just joking and having, you know, it's almost like... Because can't attack Mal. It's an easy one to answer. It's because they're married. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's the reason. Yeah, because yeah, you you take things out on your partner. I, you I, that's that's something I will hold my hands up to. You do. You may not like the fact that you do it, but you do. Fair enough. I also think at that point she's she's deeply suspicious of her. I think she's the first. Yeah, feminine intuition she's the first is to kicking cotton in on because she because she she doesn't seem real, and she makes that quip, doesn't she, about her being a little slave girl. <sighs> And and she, you can, clearly she's sort of saying, you know, there's more to this woman than meets the eye. You know, you need to, you know, watch out. And I think she's frustrated that nobody else is is, is noticing the same thing she is. I was watching River carefully when uh, everyone gets told about it. And she's, you know, she looks at uh, Saffron a little bit. And then uh, later on, she's sort of standing back and staring at the scene and observing it. I'm fairly certain she cottoned on because during one of the deleted scenes, she just blurts out, you're a thief. And uh, Saffron pulls a biscuit out of her uh, dress and says, you know, after I I made you your food, I took this. There wasn't much left, sorry. And then um, Mal gives her a big, long speech about how she should either take something and and say she's taking it or ask for it, but not to to steal things. She says, I didn't know you saw me take it. And River says, I didn't. And it's like, you know, at that point, River absolutely knows, but she's too, you know, she's not lucid enough to be able to uh, get it across to everyone else. Oh, by the way, she is completely screwing us over. At the same time, she's also trying to get Shepard Book to marry her and Simon. So, hmm. I bring her judgment <laughs> into question at that point. Something which Simon is absolutely horrified at the idea of as well. It's important to know. I, I can see why the Fox executives said, take it out, take it out, take it out. Tell him. Tell him what? We want you to marry us. What? Wait, no. What? Two by two, everyone a match, a mate, a doppel. I love you. Oh, River, Mamie, of of course, I I love you too, but 
We can't be married. She's really crazy. Ah! Oh, uh, no, I, I, I don't mean crazy. That's just, you know, that's not something brothers and sisters do. I mean, on, on some planets, but only pretty bad ones. The captain took a wife. Well, that's also complicated. I don't know where this is coming from. We'll take care of each other. I'll knit. You don't love me. What's going on? I really couldn't say. I like in this episode that you get that little breakdown of serenity, um, yeah. where the um, the guys on the the net are analysing it and, and sort of talking about what parts it's got and the fact that it's more than just the sum of the parts. I like the idea of them saying that you know the ship, you know, if you, if you actually look at it, will just run and run and run. That that gives the, the sense of um, that one of the things about serenity that is most noteworthy it's not the speed it's not the even the stealth it's the stamina well, that she will just keep flying part of that is in um, I mean you if you look at the comparison between an old car and bang up to date new cars if serenity breaks down in the middle of nowhere if you can get the parts you stand a chance of being able to put her back together and, and going on well, you can uh, pr- probably fabricate the parts if yeah. they're simple enough yeah cobble it together but but a, a flashy new ship stroke car i mean this is this is one of the things my dad always laments about um uh, new cars my dad's a trained engineer and has basically been mechanicking things since he was about 14 um, and he, he can't do anything with new cars because the, the, everything's sealed in plastic and they need things that he doesn't even vaguely have the tools for that's all um, software <laughs> yeah, indeed you know but an old banger you can if you can fix it you can keep it going and going and going I can't believe that we haven't mentioned you got something you don't deserve. <laughs> I'd like you to have this. This is my very favourite gun. Vera. Oh, Vera. Yeah, the interplay between uh, Mal and Jane there, and, and this idea that, that Jane is seeing her as merely a thing that could be bargained back and forth. Well, to be fair, she has been traded to him instead of money. So mm. you, I'm not saying that that makes Jane any less of Jane, but... Um, <laughs> It's not the first time this particular idea has been applied to this particular person. He sees the process in there and just figured, well, maybe I can get me a wife. The, the other thing that's really nice about this episode is the very beginning, uh, after they um, take in the guys after Mal's little um, cross-dressing routine, is um, the, the little party there where Mal inadvertently ends up getting married it's, it's just playing some nice music and they're you know, having some good times and that is viewed like a memory it's like that was the good times that's when the crew were all together and they really didn't actually have that much longer before they started going you know a couple of them went their separate ways and then they didn't all get back together at the end of that one so it's there are only a few times that we actually ever get to see them really relax and this is one of them it's a nice downtime moment. Oh, the other thing I can't believe we didn't mention in the train job is when Mal gets Krull or Hawk or whatever his name is uh, and stands him beside the engine, tries to give him back Niska's money. Now this is all the money Niska gave us in advance. You bring it back to him, tell him the job didn't work out. We're not thieves. But we are thieves. 
Point is, we're not taking what's his. Now, we'll stay out of his way as best we can from here on in. You explain, that's best for everyone, okay? Keep the money. Use it to buy a funeral. It doesn't matter where you go or how far you fly. I will hunt you down. And the last thing you see will be my blade. Dark. Now this is all the money Mr. Oh, gave us in advance. I'm good. Let's see for everyone. I'm right there with you. It shows that Mal is prepared to shoot first if it comes to Greedo. He does that in he does it in Serenity though. In sorry, in the yeah. pilot, he just he walks onto the ship and everybody's been sort of umming and ahhing about how they're going to deal with the guy whose name escapes me, the the Fed, Lawrence. The Fed, yeah. And Mal just walks in, shoots him in the head, and keeps walking. Other bits from our Mrs. Reynolds, when he finally corners her at the very, very end and asks her what her real name is, and you get that fraction of a second of pausing on her face. And like, and frankly, they could have taken um, Saffron on board at some point in a later episode and kept her for a long, long time as the tenth member of uh, the, uh, the crew. She would have been a really interesting character. She's one of the few characters they meet along the way that actually has the chops to be one of the main crew. Just to rewind a bit... Um the scene where uh, Mal and her are in his room together and she's completely naked is... And all articulate yeah, is a really great scene, mainly because of Nathan Fillion's performance, where... The, He's dumbfounded. Well, it's the, you know, struggling between what your penis is telling you and what your... <laughs> what your morals are telling you to do. All of a sudden, your brain has half its blood flow. What are you supposed to do? Well, it, it's like he's clearly attracted to this woman. Like, mm. and, he, and he mentions at that point that it's been a long, long time since I've had an intimate, relation, intimate relations with anyone. Since I've been doing any plowing? <laughs> um, but it's about, you know, his morals. This is not right. I may, you know, secretly, well, not secretly, I may want this um, to some degree, but it's not right, and I'm, I refuse to go down this path. Mm. And it was just really both funny and really, you know, just fascinating watching him struggle with those two very different parts of his personality. But if it had gone both ways, either way, it would actually have still been in keeping with his character. Indeed. But w one of the things that I find really, really funny about this scene is that it's, it starts off and it's basically a, 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 not really a porn movie setup, but kind of, you know, it, it's, it's practically he's come to you fix the cable. You haven't seen many porn you know? it's, All right. Erotic drama thingies. Yes. It's, it's, you know, one of those fantasy <laughs> scenarios. Black lace. But then it completely gets... Fifty Shades of Brown Coat. <laughs> but then it completely gets spun on its head by the end of the scene. And it's mm. incredibly funny. Jane. Yes, you're The man they call Jane. Robbed from the rich and he gave to the poor. Stood up to the man and he 
gave him what for our love for him now ain't hard to explain the hero of canton the man they call jane our jane saw the mother's backs breaking he saw the mother's laments and he saw the magistrate taking every dollar and leaving five cents so he said you can't do that to my people he said um, can't crush that yeah, no. you got any light you'd like to shed on this development no well no this must be what going mad feels like What separates heroes from common folk like you and I? The man they called Jane, he turned around his plane and let that money hit sky. Go around, that's why that cash went. I stole that money from Higgins, like the song says. Lifted me one of his hovercraft. I got tagged by anti-aircraft, started losing altitude. Had to dump them strong boxes. Stay airborne. We gotta go to the crappy town where I'm a hero. So, Jane's Town. This one's actually a pretty simple episode, isn't it? It's, it's mainly just a case of that Jane that you've been considering to be this, this ape the whole time shows that there is a bit more to him. In fact, no, there's one bit in the pilot where even though he's been teasing Kaylee, and even though he's been acting like he doesn't care... When she's shot, Jane is worriedly watching proceedings from a uh, quiet spot up in the rafters, very, very worried about Kaylee, which is a great bit of characterization very early on for him to show that he does actually care. There's more to him than just this brute. He's a fantastic character that if I met in real life, I'd hate him. That's because you're Simon. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> There's so many aspects of his personality that make him interesting to watch, but, you know, if I met him, I'd punch him in the face. He's ignorant about so many things. Uh, he's... Bray's not the right word. I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a, a way of combining brave and stupid together in one word. What, how would you describe that? Um, Headstrong. Yeah. Pig foolhardy. Foolhardy, yeah. That exactly. He he just bullish. Bullish. He's a bully. He's very blunt and mean to He's immature. Yeah. He's entirely self interested. The the bit where it's is it the beginning of Shindig when they get in the bar fight? And yeah. he Mal's basically saying, Jane, we could really use you to come and, you know, punch some people I don't know, here. I don't I don't know war. No war. He has the emotional development of a thirteen year old boy. You can see how he gets on so well with Riverbend, can't you? <laughs> Just kind of stopped. 
what really upsets him in this episode is not being adored by the people uh, and, and then having to sort of uh, fess up to them. That That's just kind of a... That's his conscience telling him that he's got to stop these folks from just lying to themselves. And actually what he does is to try to get them stand up, fight for their own rights and, and freedom. It's when the guy jumps in front of the bullet, bodyguard style, and takes it for him and dies. It's he doesn't believe people should be dying for him. He's a mercenary, and deep down he feels he's worthless. And that really upsets him, and it really, it actually kind of disturbs him that this kid um, died for him, and that he never even had a chance to explain to him that the kid was dying for nothing. I know I'm skipping ahead a bit, but it links in with what you're saying. Uh, Jane mm. and Mal have the, this conversation at the end of the episode where they're talking about you know, why people have statues built for them and why yeah. people become symbols. It's not because they were particularly perfect people. They, some of them were pigus, just like uh, Jane. But people need that. They need that higher power to look up to. Mm. And it's interesting that these people just made him, made Jane this character that he never was. And for me, I wonder whether there are these people that, well, there definitely are. There are people in history that we've elevated to a certain status who were just average guys just like us. Very difficult to articulate, but Jane is probably my favourite character. Yeah. Um, Simply because he's, he's so... Predictable, I think is the you know, um, for the exact opposite reason of what I just said about Mal being less predictable. Yes, in effect, I mean he, he he you know he has a code of as you're saying he has like a a basic code of honour, but mm. uh, and that's really all he all he has that really that's that, that you know that's all he has to fall back on everything else he just really wants to be paid and shoot people and that's all he's really about you know i talked about motivations with wash i think jane's motivations are pretty obvious he he's just a, he's just living hand to mouth doing it the way he knows how to do it and um i just i also find that he has some of the funniest for me and in my sense of humor anyway he has some of the funniest moments you know um I, mm. the, the kind of the black humor that's attached to jane i find particularly witty and Baldwin's delivery oh, really is fantastic. It's fantastic, yeah. And his yeah. delivery is superb. Um, and I love the... the, the, the I know it's, it's in a future episode, isn't it, where he gets the woolly hat from his mum and, and <laughs> the fact that he then wears it for the whole rest of it. And he doesn't look any the less the hard man with it either. Mm. It's just... Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It's just... I, of, the, of the whole crew, he's the one I, I, I associate, uh, you know, uh, the most... I would say humour that I that I enjoy. I mean, Wash is funny, and they're all funny, but uh, he has some particularly good one-liners. Um, and I think the the good thing about James Jamestown is that it, it you kind of alluded to it. When you talked about the, the speech about statues at the end. It's really a comment on celebrity, uh, as well as you know building icons in honour of people, um, and the fact and and the effect that celebrity has on people because i mean he his character does change when he realizes that they're not there to lynch him which is what he was expecting but they're actually going they're actually there to celebrate him and he and he he just again being the the very straightforward down to earth person he is he just laps it up and runs with it because that's what he does and um 
even knowing that he's a complete fraud. It, it, it you know, that's although that gnaws away at him on the inside, like several things do in future shows. Um, he just he just runs with it because that's his way. It's uh, you know he's, he lives he lives by the moment and by the day and. Uh, kind of, I would imagine, goes with the profession. You know, if you're a mercenary, you don't know which day is going to be your last. So that's the way you would exist. Another fantastic Jane line is when he's interrogating the Fed and, uh, you know, he's implying that he's going to torture him. And then the guy squeals and says, you're going to tell me what they know. Everything. They know everything. They know everything. See, you don't know nothing. They didn't teach you this how to get tortured right. It's going to get me an ear. <laughs> and it's, it, just, it seems like he actually really didn't mean it. Like he really was going to start cutting off ears and it was going to be some kind of thing. But then when you get to know Jane throughout the rest of the series, you realise that he's not really actually that capable of truly atrocious, torturous acts. He's not a psychopath. He turns his nose up at a lot of things like that. He, he talks yeah. to him, oh, that's just nasty. You know, he, 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 yeah. yeah, indeed. It's all, again, it's all for show. It's, it's the... It's the yeah. It's his protection. It's his barrier, really. There was a big fun. He could definitely shoot a guy in the chest with a shotgun if the guy was coming at him with a gun. But I think if he was unarmed, Jane would, you know, that code would start coming in again and he'd start to wonder what the point was. Jane seems extremely, and Jane is, to a large degree, extremely predictable. But you do find out those little things like the hat that his mom makes him and the fact that he's sending his mm. mother money and the fact that he is really upset by this kid who has jumped in front of him uh, you know, to take a, a shotgun blast for him. And I, I, I also always kind of found it interesting that he, you know, he gives off the impression very intentionally that he is kind of a devil-may-care rogue who will go wherever the highest money is, but he immediately, well, almost immediately, backs down to Mal every time. When Mal says, you know, get away from this table, he makes a face and he takes the plate, but he's gone. You know, he, he is not he might try to stand stand up to Mal a little bit, but he would never, ever think of completely disobeying, I don't think. Just not not at that point. He gets to that point in... Um, uh, it's Ariel where he tries to betray uh, Simon and uh, River. And that's a major Jane episode because Mal's going to space him, sticks him in the airlock. Uh, he says, don't tell him what I did. Make up something else. Mm. Because he actually does care what other people think about him. Now, if he was only in it for the money, he wouldn't care. He'd just go, ah, oh, frack you. And well, he, give him a finger. As we'll discuss next time, he, I mean, he was spared because he repented. He'd, he'd already, yeah. you know, he didn't go through with what he intended to do. But, yeah, that's, yeah, image to him is everything. And, he, you know, it is this, this persona he portrays, he's trying to maintain. I also think, you know, it's all about the, the you know, the fact that he's always... Always backs down. I think uh, Mal is like the is definitely the alpha male in the group, whereas you know uh, Jane is always trying to challenge that authority. He's kind of the scruffy dog. He is. He's the, yeah, he's <laughs> he's the little yappy <laughs> dog. Yeah, but uh, well, not necessarily a little yappy dog, but certainly one that you know, just sort of tends to barge through things, but really needs the smarter yeah, collie. That's to what tell he, he lacks. He lacks any kind of strategy. So all the, all yeah. the you know all the while that Mal has his wits about him, he would always play second fiddle. Yeah, but it, th- there would be if if this went on, there would probably be an episode where Jane staged his own rebellion and tried to leave the ship and would did a 
terrible job of it. Well, he kind of tries to do that in which episode is it where Simon drugs him so that when Mal's off the ship, he just kind of falls over eventually because nobody wants him in charge. Oh, yeah. I can't remember which one that was. It's either... It's train job. Is it train job? Yeah. Because yeah, oh yeah, when, you're right. Uh, because it's when they're in the, uh, it's when he and Zoe are off the ship. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wants to go, doesn't he? He wants to go to the rendezvous point, and Wash won't go. Yeah. Well, basically, no one, no one would follow Jane because he doesn't seem like he could really take care of himself. Not really. If he could take care of himself, he'd have been off years ago. Uh, if if you. Um, if you guys have played Mass Effect 2, look to Zed for someone who is a total mercenary and really doesn't care. He's like a rubbish version of Jane. Mm. One other thing about this episode, which isn't linked to Jane, that I really like is um, the progression of Simon and Kaylee's relationship. Kaylee, yes. Um, when Simon gets drunk and just finally lets his guard down, just, you know... Stops trying to be proper, stops trying to be, you know, nice and respectful, and just tells Kaylee what he actually thinks of her. It's just, it was a really nice, sweet moment. Because he wasn't being pervy either. He was, you know, complimenting her in all the right ways. But like a 12-year-old boy again. He was like, you're pretty. Well, he is drunk. To be fair, we would turn into thirteen-year-old boys when we're drunk. Um, He's repeatedly upset and offended Kaylee throughout the uh, series, but not once has he meant to. Yeah, and that's actually quite an interesting aspect of himself. It's like his his, his brain's clever, his mouth is stupid. Oh God, I so relate. Um, <laughs> well, see, we get you on the show for your brain, and we just try and just just hope that we can get that thing talking. <laughs> Going along with the the Simon and Kaylee thing, I just I, I do like the moment when they wake up and Mal's there and he's trying to de- Simon is trying to defend himself like this is her father essentially, which is what he's mm-hmm. acting like at that point. It's just, nothing happened, nothing happened. Oh God, I'm so sorry. And the irony is that Mal actually purposefully leaves them alone when Kaylee goes. It's going really well. Yeah, once she and he is you know, head with yeah. it. But yeah, Simon's attitude of no, not her, is it's ridiculous. Again, like a child. But then again, he doesn't seem like he's actually had that chance to really grow into himself. He's he's jumped from uh, school to medical college, you know, graduating with with honours, but not actually experienced any real life, and then spent years obsessing over getting his sister back, and then got it. But he didn't develop the street smarts or the ability and skill with people along the way. So this is his learning curve. The entirety of the series is him learning this stuff. And we didn't mention it before, but um, the reaction of the Tam parents uh, to Zac Efron, Simon's assertions that River is in danger, is appalling. And it made you think, Sharon, that they were being paid off. To just be, just accept that their daughter is away and she won't be killed, but uh, just to not ask what was going to happen. Yeah, I thought there might be an element of that to it. I, I was trying to figure out what would have been the angle, though, because it. I wondered if there might have been some kind of deal that, you know, your son has great potential and we will make sure that he fulfills that potential, um, but you, we want you to let your daughter go. Um, which would be horrendous enough on its own, but they don't seem to express any real concern um, mm. about 
the situation that River's in, or the. I mean, even if you go on the assumption that you think your son is losing his mind and becoming completely obsessed with um, with a daughter that you think is fine and having a great time in the school that she's gone to, um, would you not express some concern for him that that he might need help of some kind? Would would the reaction really be? get away from me before you bring shame on this family? Yeah. I would be less inclined to believe that they have some kind of deal and more inclined to believe that they are being threatened. Like, she's not being hurt, but if you try to mess with us, we will kill her. Yeah. And maybe him, too. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's that's more like it, actually. Just the, they, 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 they seem too immediately quick to go, that's ah, fine, drop it. Um, to uh, to Simon, just this this whole like he presents them with case by case reasons why there's clearly something up. When he's like, you know, did you enjoy the, the party at the Maitlands this year? I thought it was a lot more boring than last year. We don't even know people that name that, and it's like, right, she, clearly she's sending us a message here. You would have to be utterly boneheaded not to think something was up. And they're like, eh, it's fine. So I think, yeah, coercion or something. It just, they, just the earlier bits that you get with them, although it's not much, just don't... I, I just... They don't come across to me as a family that would just take money or take some kind of... Just to let their child go. Social standing, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, I could be wrong, yeah. but it just, that wasn't... We'll never that know! Wasn't, that wasn't the, uh, the vibe that I kind of got from them. Yeah. I... I the threat would would be more what I would think of, I think. Okay, so I think we're going to leave it there this week, and we will talk about more next week. There'll be more discussion on character development and, of course, discussion about the troubled production run. Just as a reminder, if you're new to this series but want to track it down now, the DVD set is eleven seventy-five on Amazon or £15 for the Blu-ray. That is crazy value. Also, you can just stream it on Netflix. Or indeed Netflix. Yeah, if you've got Netflix, you are totally quids in at this point. The movie, Serenity, is... Two pounds for the brand new DVD, and also seven ninety-nine for the Blu-ray, and of course, yeah, Netflix, fantastic. The soundtrack is thirteen pound seventy, and the movie score is thirteen pound sixty-three. So those are going to set you back some if you uh, genuinely love the music. But frankly, if you've listened to it on, throughout the podcast, you will agree it's fairly wonderful. Whatever you think about the theme music, <laughs> just being honest, and man. <laughs> And speaking of music, to close out these shows, I have selected three songs from the Firefly and Battlestar Galactica-inspired album Got to Fly by the exceptionally talented and geeky folk singer Marianne Call. This is available from iTunes, Bandcamp, and CD Baby for around $7.99. The first one that we're playing right now, appropriately for the episode we've just reviewed, is called It's Good to Have Jane on Your Side. 
Okay, so before we go, uh, I'm going to ask you guys quickly to pimp a particular favourite episode of your shows. So, I mean, what, there's three people from uh, Dork cast. We have to fight it out over our three episodes, one of which has not yet been published. Uh, okay, well, actually, no. I'm going to I'm going to ask Matt to uh, to pimp a specific favorite episode of uh, Dork Tunes, if you will. Okay, I will pimp uh, episode twelve, uh, which is the one that I'm not on. Um, well, that's not the reason. Uh, we actually did an interview with uh, Dan Marr, Mr. Pointyhead from Xbox, uh, well, X, X, Inside Xbox, um, and the conversation went on for so long and was so engaging we made that the episode and uh, yeah that one's uh, that one's pretty good I'm very pleased okay Leah uh, what's your current favourite episode uh, you know what <laughs> just tell us about the, the new what are we what are you guys talking about on the new because it'll be out by the time people it listen should to be this. yes the uh, third it's, episode it's of to go up, uh, Saturday morning so it should be out by the time mm-hmm. people listen to this the new episode is episode 3 and we are talking about Eurogamer which Matt and Sharon and myself were all in attendance at and um, then we do our normal thing where we talk about books and movies as well so um yeah, that's GamerDork.net, and uh, you can look for us on iTunes, uh, Storkcast. And Sharon, rather than pimping either of the two shows we just had, think of an episode of Digital Gonzo you were on that newcomers might not have heard yet, which they might want to listen to, which you were on. I would say probably either my appearance on Sounds of Gonzo, which was a couple of weeks oh, ago. Oh, yes. Um, yep, where so we talked about various um, tracks from film scores um, or my Desert Island Gonzo which is quite old now um, but you know people might not have listened to yet that's good for that's yep. got stuff okay, about so me on it <laughs> Desert Island Gonzo for the uninitiated is uh, Neil Taylor of Gameburst um, talking and KDS 2.0 uh, taking various people on a uh, island where they had to bring with them eight geeky things movies TV shows music etc and Sharon was on episode 2 so if you want to hear more from Sharon that's one to check out actually I'm going to plug the most recent episode of uh, Kane and Rince the episode on Mirror's Edge on this show we've been talking about you know the potential of this series and what could have happened if this was allowed to carry on and there's a lot of that kind of conversation during the uh, Mirror's Edge episode where we talk about how uh, well I'm not on it but they talk about how this game had a lot of potential and how amazing it could have been uh, this franchise could have been if it was allowed to have a Mirror's Edge 2 or a Mirror's Edge 3 and finally Gary a personal favourite episode of Game Burst not one that you or James has mentioned recently <laughs> Gary's <laughs> got to remember which ones him and James have mentioned recently That's not yeah I, I, I don't remember what they were. With James with the, what, James never remembers anything um well, I could draw people's attention to a certain quiz that was aired on the 27th of September, but I think probably most people who listen to the show know about that one. Sheer brilliance <laughs> from all involved. <laughs> um, I would say one to look out for in the future is, uh, I'm not sure when it's coming out, it's either Sunday or next Thursday, is the one we recorded live in Midge's hotel room at Eurogamer with special guest Mr. Ben Ford. So do look out for that one. I've got a funny feeling it's going to be next Thursday.
Wicked. Okay, so live Eurogamer stuff right there. So actually, uh, as we speak, that's pretty much going up the same day as today. Uh, it could well be, yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, James is the master of the schedule, but I, I'm pretty sure it will be. A final thank you to Stuart Robson and Scott Unison, who donated to Gonzo Planet whilst I was editing this podcast. Stay tuned to the very end for the outtakes. We will be back next week with more Firefly, and the week after, concluding with Serenity. Thank you guys very much for coming on. You have been a fantastic crew, as always. It is a pleasure flying with you all. Okay, and uh, this is Marianne Call with It's Good to Have Jane on Your Side. We'll see you next week. I've been Alex Shaw. You've been listening to Digital Gonzo, and stay shiny. Don't give a damn what you think He spends his days turning ranches And his nights chasing wenches And he'll happily kick in your teeth Oh, he'll happily kick in your teeth Well, he comes from St. Joe Where he grew up with his mom Lots of fish and this drunk Mexican And then he hopped a few trains Just to ride off his pains Now he's doing the best that he can Oh, he's doing the best that he can He's too proud to live And too dumb to die Oh, it's good to have Jane on your side He steals what he needs from the big companies And he don't fight for honor nor fame A night out with his gun is his idea of fun And he thinks all you mutters are lame so you mutters are lame But he don't do much hating He don't need a lot from this world Just a little more clutch And some vittles and such 
And just one night with some pretty girl Oh, some trim from some fine-looking girl Oh, he's too proud to live and too dumb to die Lord knows how his mama she tried You see lots of his um, uh, partners. Sorry, there's a f***ing fire alarm in the background of my audio. <laughs> I'm just going to let it pass by and I'm going to continue. Okay, asshole. Um, probably I hope you burn. Well, oh, my God. Josh, I want you to say this word for me, please. Yeah. P-yen. P-yen. And again? P-yen. Okay, I'm going to dub that over you saying asshole. Okay. <laughs> okay. Especially a crank, but never mind. It's either close enough. I don't think we're going to get Mandarin people turning up and going, hang on. That's okay. Alan Tudyk. It's possible that's my favourite. I was going to say Alan Tudyk is appropriately blessed with, but then I trailed off. Alan Tudyk. Yeah. He's just got the one. Alan Tudyk. Or is it Tudyk? I like. I keep saying I like. I. I'm, you do. Yeah, I really hate that I do that. I think that this is really good because I usually just cut that bit out yeah. and then you just get straight to it. Kaylee's um, ability to be able to just read machines and able to understand is really interesting. Oh my god, what's wrong <laughs> with me? I would like to recommend to Naughty Dog, they consider Alan Tudyk. He would work very well with that, uh, the, the, well, for a start, he'd work very well with, uh... What's his name? What's his name? Who's Drake? Nolan North. Sorry, I just couldn't get that in my head. That's because, basically, because Nathan Fillion had trotted in there and squatted down. Good lord. It's supposed to be clean, remember? He's just sitting, he's not pooping. Well, he is now. Not in my head. Mine's clean. <laughs> That's all I have to say. And we have ourselves some outtakes. I didn't do it, right? I had Don't nothing to do. do with that one. You're that a bad one's... influence, Hayden. Hey, I think I've said that before. <laughs> As I was saying, it worked very well with Nathan. <laughs> Get out of here, Nathan! <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, just got an image of Alex batting Nathan Fillion away with a newspaper. <laughs> a 
tiny Nathan Fillion or a fully sized Nathan Fillion? A small <laughs> one that, like he is now, like no, twice as fully big. Fully sized Nathan Fillion, giant newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, focus. Anyway. It's not even worth making a point anymore. He'd be good in an Uncharted-style game, that's all. <laughs> okay. Oh, Christ. <laughs> Josh, uh, a personal favourite episode of Kane and Rince? Um, one of my... Sorry, there's some Hang on. static. How did that come across? How did you got the internet? How did static? <laughs> Unbelievable. I don't know. It's a sunspot. Okay, right. So, coming into us live on location, Joshua Garrity. It's stopped now. What's the weather like there, Josh? <laughs> uh, it's all right. Um, uh, oh God, it's stopped now. Okay. Um, right. <laughs> Although, actually, I could uh, I could end on saying, I'm Alex Shaw, and Shun Sheng Du Gao Wan, which is Holy Testicle Tuesday. <laughs> um, I'm getting a bit of an echo. Has anyone else... Unplug their mic or something. I'm or their hearing device. an echo. It came through mainly when um, Josh was talking and you were typing. On on my Skype window, it's coming through you, Alex, and it was when you were typing. Maybe if I talk quietly. Maybe if I never stop talking. I can't hear any echo now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I getting any echo any now. No, I can't hear anything. Are okay. the voices telling you to do things? They are. Little Nathan Fillion on my shoulder. <laughs> He's squatting. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. Nathan has never pooped on my shoulder. Nathan Fillion on one shoulder, Shepherd Book on the other. Sorry, uh, Ron Glass on the other. I wanted to keep it consistent. Yeah. That's important. Otherwise, it would be crazy. 